Tune in to the Neil Prenderville Show weekdays from 9am on Cork's Red FM. Talking in the news there at 9 o'clock and uh, it's just picking up on a topic we had on, on air yesterday morning with regards to traffic on our roads and I hope that that young woman is okay fighting for her life after a road traffic collision in the early hours of this morning. This is at uh, Anglesey Street and Union Quay, that, uh, that junction there, Anglesey Street and Union Quay. 19-year-old woman um, at, collided apparently with uh, between a taxi and a car and, a, and, a, and, a, and her bike or her, her, she's a cyclist uh, and it's very very sad I hope she's okay in a critical condition the driver of the car was uninjured it's about 2 o'clock in the morning apparently so if um, there are any updates on that throughout the morning I will come back to that story but uh, uh, talking about our city as to whether it's tired or not tired and I was talking about this yesterday the CNN journalist who was here described Cork as tired he used terms like uh, uh, I think he also used the word tatty and pricey. They were the three words that everybody honed in on. Tired, tatty and pricey. Uh, where we were punching above our weight when it came to prices. We charge particularly for people who want to eat out and have a bit of food in the city. Well, the Taoiseach, uh, the, the Echo says this morning, the Taoiseach said that Cork City is not tired. But at the same time, he says we have to listen to people's observations when they visit here. He said, I actually did an interview with Richard Quest from CNN, he said, and I was the one that told him to go to the English market. Um, And uh, he says, um, we have to take on board what people coming to visit say. And he says, there's no doubt the city's going through a transformative period in terms of uh, the city centre for the future, but he said, I think the city council's decision to pedestrianise 18 streets during COVID was very imaginative. So he kind of held back, actually. I'm not so sure whether he agrees or, or disagrees with him, but uh, certainly your thoughts on it are welcome, whether as to Cork is tired, uh, tatty or pricey. Uh, morale within the Garda Shikana is at an all-time low. More on that in a few minutes' time. The GRA uh, conference is on at the moment up in Westport County, Mayo, uh, and they are talking about a lot of aspects the Garda are very unhappy with. Now, while members of the Garda Shikana themselves can't talk, their union, the Garda Representative Association, can talk, and they, of course, can give us an idea as to just how tough Garda are finding it at the moment. But there's a particular guard that makes the star today who's facing the sack. Would you believe this? The Lagarda is facing the sack for turning on the squad car's blue lights to warn motorists that a stolen vehicle was speeding towards them. I mean, you would think that the guy should be commended for quick thinking, wouldn't you? But apparently not. And that's one of the stories that's come up on the GRA in Westport. And other transport-related stories this morning include the examiner who talk about um, drunk teens on bus air and buses. Now, uh, we've dealt with this from time to time, particularly with regards to the Crosshaven bus. And that's the centre of this story in particular, the Crosshaven bus, bus, because there's been large numbers of drunk teenagers causing trouble, particularly during the good weather and particularly during the summer. I don't know what this summer is going to be like, but apparently there is the the story of uh, an influx of youngsters, mainly youngsters who are drunk, causing trouble in the area of Crosshaven as they're waiting to get buses. And uh, there was a recent incident where fights broke out among some youths waiting for buses in Crosshaven to come back home. And that footage was widely circulated on, on social media. I don't know how recent that is. I mean, is it recent as in there's been more? Or is, it the, is this recent of the story that we were talking about uh, maybe even last summer? But it's a problem that hasn't gone away. Uh, drunk teenagers getting on and a drunk teenager, to- I mean, a lot of the time, tote and drink down to the likes of uh, Crosshaven. 
Health-related matters, of course, continue because we have medical scientists on strike. There's about 14,000 people directly affected by their one-day strike last week. And this week, they figure, particularly today, up to 50,000 patients uh, will face continued disruption because of the strikes uh, by medical scientists. And if you are part of the backlog for passports, you might be interested to know that there is no processing backlog when it comes to passports. There's not a backlog, you know, there aren't issues trying to churn them out. The issue is um, more to do with uh, incorrectly, um, uh, you know, people who filled out their forms or their details incorrectly. There's nearly 200,000 people now who apparently, according to the passport office, um, filled them out incorrectly. And that's what's causing uh, the backlog in delays. Your thoughts on that are welcome if you're one of the 200,000 Text 0868104106. And meanwhile, as things go from bad to worse, and we were talking about the cost, say, for instance, last week of, um, yeah, okay, because you've home heating, you've got diesel or petrol in the car, you've got all energy costs going up, you've got inflation going up, which means that uh, a supermarket shop is going through the roof, and also back to school costs and everything in September are going to be a head wreck. And then there was the voluntary contributions that people have to pay to schools. The Independent this morning says the parents will have to fundraise for the surging cost of heating and lighting their children's classroom if school grants aren't kept at uh, COVID levels. So parents will have to come up with the money and do fundraising just to get the lights and the heating on in their schools, according to the Independent. That's like 200 years ago, maybe not even 200 years ago. Perhaps you might even say 60, 70 years ago uh, when kids were bringing um, sods of turf or lumps of coal uh, to heat their classrooms way back in the day. And it's so bad now that our politicians are sleeping in their cars. There's a senator called Eugene Murphy that makes the front of the mirror. He's being forced to sleep in his car because he can't find a hotel room in Dublin. Um, and that's that's very serious, the lack of hotel rooms and guest houses as we head into the summer. And that's like a perfect storm of reasons behind that. But if you're trying to buy a house, you're 30 grand short, apparently, in the average wage that you earn per year because the average wage is probably in and around 40-odd thousand and um, maybe even a push on 50,000 I suppose but certainly no more than that whereas first time buyers need an income of 77,000 for the bank so that they can actually get a mortgage to buy a house <clears throat> so that's a big problem isn't it income needed for a home 30 grand short of the average wage uh, and internationally don't know whether you knew this or not but uh, apparently Vladimir Putin uh, survived an assassination attempt a couple of months ago uh, the son described this morning describes him as the tyrant widely regarded as the most hated man on earth and the headline in the sun is better luck next time comrade um, and if sitting around watching television is what you like to do uh, it may not be good for your health because it could have a big issue and a big contributory factor to factor to heart disease and they're saying if you cut down on the amount of television you watch and exercise a bit more i suppose you're cutting down on heart disease and the papers also talk about things that we eat in the say in the shape of the times uk and this apparently is a book that's being auctioned today it's from 1662 and it's full of recipes and their medical benefits back in the 1600s and i was interested in it because it hones in on chocolate because in the 1600s, apparently, chocolate was a wonder cure. I don't know what chocolate would have tasted back then. You know, it might have been very strong or very bitter or maybe even raw cocoa. I don't know. But they're saying that chocolate back then treats melancholy. And I think that's also valid today. You feel better after a piece of chocolate or a bar of chocolate, don't you? I don't know whether it's the sugar rush, but you just feel good. 
all is good with the world, chomping on a bar of chocolate. But apparently they were also saying back then that it's very good and it can treat constipation and venereal disease. <laughs> They're new ones on me, but certainly the melancholy. I can see where that would make sense. And then do you remember the Australian woman um, who woke up with an Irish accent? It's a Taiwan woman who bizarrely woke up speaking with an Irish accent following tonsil surgery. She never, ever set foot in Ireland, but she still has the Irish brogue, apparently, by all accounts. So this is, um, this is her original accent before the tonsil surgery. I'm just calling to cancel my membership, and I was just wondering for the monthly payments that I've paid. All right. And this is how she sounds now after the, um, after the operation. I can't shake it. I just did... A job interview in an Irish accent when I've never been to Ireland. I usually sing when I'm showering and listening to songs and all of a sudden I was talking in an Irish accent. Is that an Irish accent? Forgive me now, am I the only man on the planet here who doesn't think that's an Irish accent? I mean, give me a break. Like It's like a, it's like a cross between an English accent, an Australian accent and a touch of West Coast America. But that's just me. What would I know? And sad news this morning, lads. Another good one gone. And that, of course, uh, sadly, is the uh, one and only Cork music figure, Cahill Collin. This lovely piece in the Examiner this morning. Back in the day, he was the lead singer of bands like Micro Disney and Fatima Mansions. And he's passed away at the age of 61. And his family issued a statement yesterday saying that he slipped away peacefully in hospital after a long illness. And back in the early 80s, they call it the post-punk scene in Cork. There were many, many Cork bands thriving, going from strength to strength. They had great locations to play in. A lot of it kind of hovered around the Arcadia Ballroom down at the time. And uh, out of that era in the early 80s came the likes of Micro Disney and Fatima Mansions. And our thoughts are with his family this morning. Uh, may he rest in peace. In fact, I also, a little later this morning, want to play uh, a piece of music from, um, from Micro Disney. So I'm going to get to that throughout the course of the morning. A lot of music-related stuff on the air today. But text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. And I'm going to get straight into it because he stepped out uh, from the GRA conference that's going on in Westport at the moment. That's Brendan O'Connor, the president of the GRA and I said in the intro this morning while members of the Garda Shikona themselves can't talk to the media and can't pick up the phone and talk to me their representative body certainly can and that's why I'm keen to talk to Brendan Brendan good morning good morning how are you yeah because a lot of Garda are very frustrated about working conditions and just trying to go about their job but are are very much muted to let people know Uh, but you're not holding back on that and the papers this morning also talk about very low morale is that right that's correct, yeah. I mean, it's a subject that's been touched upon on your own show and others and our reverend Cork, Paul Karen has spoken to you. And things, I would say, it's no exaggeration, that things are not good in the organisation and people are feeling a lot of disquiet and a lot of um, unhappiness and discontent, I suppose, as I describe. But yeah, low morale is a good way of describing it. Okay. In, in, in what areas, though? It seems to be across the organisation, you know. It's just... You talk to people, and people in all different roles feel under pressure, they feel under-supported, they feel the, they feel the narrative that's coming out from Garda headquarters and from the Department of Justice that all is well, and then Garda Shikon, and that's well-resourced and well-equipped, and the reality on the ground is that members are understaffed, the, the, the levels of equipment and training that they require to do their job just simply aren't there. And you said, actually, that along. technologically... The Gardaí working at the front line are three decades behind what they should be at, technically. Yes, yes. That's, and, and, and in fairness, I was quoting from Gardaí inspectors, of course. That's not my opinion. And that's, you know, 
I mean, if you, if you sit into the guard of patrol car, uh, the, the lads that are patrolling Cork City there this morning and responded 999 Cork, it's, it's a guard, it's a family saloon car with, with a guard of radio in it. There's no um, terminals, there's no computer terminals, there's no navigation aids, the, 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 the SPAT system is uh, from the mid-80s, and it's just, it's, it's not the fitting of a modern progressive police service that's looking to the future to deliver policing in a manner fit for Just the a saloon car with the radio. Yeah, that's really it, you know, and um, it's, the really issue is, though, the thing that's really affecting that is the shortage of numbers, and that's particularly on those very frontline units. I okay, let's, ha- let's have a look at that then, um, because we uh, hear of Gardaí resigning. 100 resigned last year, 400 are expected to retire this year with only 200 recruits coming out of Temple Moore. So you're pushing a boulder up a hill there anyway. Yeah, we are, and things are getting worse, and we're just flagging it, and, you know, it's just, you know, it's resignations from a guy going, well, it was a relatively rare phenomenon. When you see, we have these personnel bulletins that were issued, and you would see someone's name on it that would be before their service, and be like, what's the story there? Why is someone leaving? No, bulletins come out and there's droves of young members who are saying this career isn't for me and then at the other end of service people who are just seem to be you know the canteen talk is when will you get 30 done when can you get out when you'll have your 30 done that means you can retire with a pension yeah, so, so you have very experienced members of the force retiring early and a loss then to law and order yeah, very, very very senior colleagues very experienced people who are young, relatively young in terms of the workforce fit have experience and they're choosing to walk out the door. We think any other organisation that was hemorrhaging uh, skills and experience like that would be saying, what is this phenomenon? Why are we losing these people? I mean, we don't even have um, exit interviews with staff who are leaving. So it's, it's, we believe it's head in the sand territory for, for management from the department. And we're flagging this crisis because we see it on the horizon and it's only getting worse from our perspective. Now, hopefully we're wrong and someone will take action, but certainly the people we represent are the people on the front line. They're the people dealing with the victims of crime. They're the people responding to emergencies, and they are telling us all is not well. And you say a lot of them are young members of the force who wouldn't have a, a whole lot of time under their belt in the first place, is it? Yes, well, the, the resignations are generally young people with... Uh, some people are maybe when they finish their training, and they're, they're, I spoke to a young guard there during the week who's contemplating leaving, and he just... He says he's going back to his previous employment. He can't cope with the workload and the burnout. He's in a busy urban centre and his, his screen of incidents is just building up and building up and building up. He's asked supervisors, can I have time to do my fires? Sorry, you can't have time to do your fires. There has to be someone on the car today. So it's just okay. it's like the hamster in the wheel. And then you have young guards coming in on their days off to do fires, bringing paperwork home. All very unhealthy cultures in any organisation or any job. And it's just taking its toll on people. Um, those files have to be done, though, because those files relate to court appearances that the Gardaí have to be present for. Yes, absolutely. And it's and it, and it victims of crime. It's, it's members of the public who are vulnerable and who have been victims of crime, and their rights have been vindicated, and the guards have to do their job. But the support structures, we believe, aren't there, and just the numbers aren't there. Even you have a finite number of people in a busy city centre like Cork or in the suburbs or even in, in, in rural parts of Cork, and the same people are going to the same incidents time and time again. There's just a burnout effect. There's only so much a finite number of people can do. And when you continue to ask the same people to do more, something has to give. Is it pay-related at all, I wonder, Brendan? Uh, I don't know if it's pay-related. I mean, look, as guards have to pay their bills, pay their but it's not a career you would choose if you're motivated by money alone. But certainly, we believe the pension situation is a big factor. Years ago, 
I suppose the likes of myself and older guards would have said, well, the pension kept us in because at least that was something to work towards. But we did enjoy our, our employment and got a level of satisfaction. But young members now, now, again, some of the younger members and some people in mid-service mid who have qualifications are actually going to the private sector where they see more attractive remuneration packages. Yeah. And I think less baggage, you know, you go in, you do your job and... You, you go home and you forget. Now, every job is stressful, but there's just this pressure on guards to be held to such a high level of accountability, both in their professional and personal lives. And people saying, you know what, it's too much to stress and too much pressure to put on, 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 on any human being, you know. Um, we talk a lot about, obviously, court reports here, here on Side, and uh, wondering, you know, from time to time as to whether the low morale within the Gardaí has anything to do with that. So much work goes into investigating, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, getting it into court only too often to find no result or a suspended sentence. Would that be one of the things that wrecks the heads of Gardaí? Well, look, some, some, some Gary might find that a bit frustrating, but we would always say our job is done whenever we issue the summons and we prepare the file and it's out of our hands then. But certainly, yes, yeah, I mean, it is frustrating when you put in so much work into something and there is no uh, outcome in the end. But that's certainly, that's not for management of the department and we can't have a clean, but that, that's our, our, our judicial system. Gotcha. But yeah. we would, you yeah. know, yeah. We would, there would be frustration, but I don't think that would be a huge factor. What about safety of Gardaí? Hearing off more of assaults on Garda Shikana as they're going about their business and going about law and order. Talk to me about that and, and the possibility of, of tasers and body cams and things. Well, as you know, the statistics are that, that, that assaults on guards are exponentially on the rise and, and, and the injuries being sustained are, are, are quite serious. So that is a huge factor. And we believe that, you know, again, our employer what's changing what they're not taking a progressive attitude and what can we do to protect guards so we're looking at everything from self-defense training to prevent uh, injury or to better defend ourselves better equipment like tasers to to to, to dis- disable maybe assailants body cameras to record evidence and mandatory sentences to punish people so it's a whole suite of packages there and we believe so the body cams would record evidence uh, i heard you on yeah. news talk this morning saying that sometimes people have come into court accused of a crime suited and booted and it's hard to picture them as a as a criminal is it but the video yeah, footage would show it yes absolutely and that that as i said the, 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 the one i was referring to was we, we had a speaker here from the uk and they showed the aftermath of, of uh, an industrial or sorry a domestic incident there you have an aggressor very emotive steam coming out of his ears we're not literally you know being abusive shouting and anger consumed with rage and that's a very far cry from someone standing in a three-piece suit, suit in a court and a lawyer saying, oh, this is out of character. Now, people are entitled to judicial, but say, the camera just gives the, the person making the decision a very good idea. And the same with the attacks on our members and the viciousness of them. You know, it's very hard to articulate what it's like to be on the receiving end of, of an unprovoked, vicious assault. And to capture that and show you the, the judiciary and show a jury, we think would have better impact and perhaps help rebuild more appropriate sentences okay. for, for these, okay. for these do, offenses. Do we have any guardie with tasers at all or is it just limited to batons? No, we do, we, we, we do have the, the armed support units, yeah. the ASU that you, you see going around there, they have, they have absolutely top class equipment and training but again, those those units are starting to, to, to experience shortcuts even done but what happens is you, you call for, for, for them as assistance. Now, obviously we can't have an ASU in every town in Ireland and the response times are very, very um, sporadic. So 
often you'd have a guard in West Cork, Donegal, out in Connemara. They could look for someone with a taser because they're approaching someone with a knife and it could be told up to an hour away. You know? I know. So sure, that's pointless. And, yes. And, and, and again, where we differ from other jurisdictions is that whenever Police Scotland started to introduce tasers, they actually went and gave them first to their officers in the Highlands that work alone, that don't have backup not the guys in the cities uh, who have backup and can get help quicker, but I don't want to paint a picture that guards in cities can have as much backup as they need because that's a far No, well, that isn't true because a lot of the time we do hear calls on this programme people say they called 999, they called guards, a lot of the time the guard stations are closed or they don't answer the phone or the, or the squad car never turns up. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, 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 I mean, that purely comes down to resources and numbers. And that's what we're talking about. And there's your listeners are, are vindicating what the GRA and our members are saying is that we're too thin on the ground, covering large areas, responding to calls further away, not trained to drive. So a member of the public picks up the phone to them in danger, I need the guards, 999. If a patrol car is coming from the other side of the city or the other side of the county, the guard is sitting at roadworks, sitting behind a red light at roadworks, can't signal a slow-moving car to get out of its way so the driver can move on. And just all these factors all combine to, to, to indicate a service that is creaking, that there are serious problems with, that, and, and the problems aren't being addressed. And we have these highfalutin reports, we have academics talking about conceptualising, about policing and theorising about it, and police culture and all the rest. When the nuts and bolts and the real nitty-gritty stuff the guards need, cars and personnel... Yeah, more blues and twos, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yes. It's boots on it's boots on the street. Yeah, and, and because people go overseas and they see Spain and they see Portugal and they see Italy and they see lots of police, don't they? Yeah, they see, and and and, visible, and it used to be that way in Ireland. You used to go down from in thoroughfare, you would see a yellow coat, you'd see a guard, but those guards are now stuck in offices, you know, updating incidents on computer. We were tied to desks, you know, on the phone updating. There's so many functions and you'll hear again this sentiment coming out and oh we're recruiting more guard staff to release guards from the front line and our experience is yes that's they're releasing some guards from administrative functions but nobody is saying right let's look at the time and motion of what are the actual guards on the front line doing, doing yeah. what can we streamline their process so they're not so they can be more active and out there on the street and not sitting in front of a policy ticking boxes for boxes for, for, for statistical reasons and not actually delivering visible, tangible policing for the public. Um, I also heard that there's a lot more, there's a lot more Gardaí going around in single, per, on their own within squad cars. Is that because of shortages as well? That can't be safe, can it? Well, it can never be 100% safe, but it certainly can be safer than the model that we're using, as in guards have always operated on their own in rural Ireland and in some circumstances in the cities, units like traffic. But you had that knowledge of knowing that another colleague was maybe in the next town or next village, and when you needed them, they'd be there in five, ten minutes. But as I say, now there's so few, you've got a guard, the nearest guard sometimes is 30, 40 kilometres away. We don't have proper safety equipment, as I say, we don't have, the, you know, modern, we don't have proper procedures for walking alone. Again, risk mitigation. You cannot make policing safe, but you can reduce the risk. And we believe there's an obligation on our employer to do that, and there, we believe there's more can be done. Yeah, because we've a lot more knife crime now, don't we? Um, I mean, we're not we're not ever looking at a stage where the Garda Shikana would be armed, no? No, no, and, and certainly time and time again, our own research, our members won't be armed, but that's again, where, like, the most effective piece of equipment any police officer can have in relation to someone with a knife is a taser. 
because if we're operating most guards with batons and pepper spray and you have to get so close to a person to utilize them and the risks are massive. So the taser, we believe, would be effective there. So is anybody listening then, year in, year out, when the GRA gets together? I suppose, unfortunately, it would, I would have to say no, because if you look at the agenda, I find it a little bit depressing because, you know, it's great to get, to get a message out there, but it's the same message year after year, and the stuff we're calling for is so basic, it's so standard across police services in similar jurisdictions, and it just seems to be we can't get it, but yet, you, you know, the public would be... But why is that? I mean, would body cams be because of... Um GDPR or something, or privacy protection laws, you think? What? In fairness, yes, in fairness, that is, that is, that is an issue, and but that has been addressed in this country, and I suppose that, that, that is good, and it's reassuring for people to but know. But if you have nothing to hide and you're not breaking the law, why should, you ma- why should it matter if a guard has a camera? Well, look, I, I can't speak from that perspective. I would share those sentiments. I mean, you walk down any street in Ireland, and just you know, how many cameras and how many Everywhere. companies are yeah. capturing your data with no regulations? I mean, at least the guards would be completely regulated, you'd have, you'd have be told why and you'd have access and there'd be proper protocols in place. So I, I've certainly, you know, when I'm off duty as a citizen, I would have no fear that, that what we brought in would be in any way oppressive okay. or, 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 or intrusive. I, need, I know you need to step back in, but thank you for stepping out, Brendan. Uh, appreciate your update. Brendan O'Connor, President-Elect of the GRA. Uh, thanks for taking the call this morning. Thanks Worrying times ahead. Cheers for now. Um, mind you, you could pick this conversation up and put it in many of the recent years gone by. Nothing seems to change. Your thoughts are welcome. Text 0868 104 106, particularly if you'd like to uh, get in touch and you're a serving member of Angarda Shikona. You can text. I won't give out your details, but I'd certainly like to hear your own sympathies or your own sentiments and your own thoughts. Text 0868104106. Back after the break. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 0868104106. Red FM. Listen, what a week it was. I was chatting about this yesterday. It was 20 years ago this week that we had Saipan ahead of uh, the World Cup of 2002. Who'd have thought it was 20 years ago, but it was. And yesterday it all kicked off in Saipan, but it was on this day 20 years ago that Roy Keane actually got on a flight and left Saipan. He couldn't go the night before because there was no flight. So it was on this morning uh, 20 years ago. And uh, I remember on the air talking about it. We were talking about it for day, days. The phones absolutely lit up. There was there was division on Lee's side. Not as much as there was nationally uh, against uh, Roy Keane or against Mick McCarthy. I think the vast majority of people on Lee's side were very supportive uh, of Roy Keane. But who'd have thought that it was 20 years ago uh, this week or indeed today. Uh, Tony O'Donoghue, the RTE soccer correspondent, uh, was, I imagine when Tony was there, he thought he was going to be there covering the preparations for the World Cup and then Ireland's performances within the World Cup. It all ended up so entirely differently. Roy Keane and Controversy have been fellow travellers for most of his professional career, but his expulsion from the Republic of Ireland squad a week before the World Cup finals is nothing short of astonishing. Having threatened to leave the squad a couple of days ago, he was persuaded to change his mind by, among others, his Manchester United manager, Alex Ferguson. This morning, as he declared his intention to retire from international football at the end of the World Cup, he lashed out at the Republic of Ireland's pre-tournament preparation, describing their training pitch in Saipan as shocking. It's not a lot of people say, well, it's typical of Roy, and Roy should really shut up, but I can't, I can't, especially if I'm captain of the team. We come over here, we travel halfway across the world, and... The training pitch is a disgrace. Well, somebody's got somebody's to hold a hand up and say, it's like training on a car park. Bloody rock car. You've had one or two injuries already and I expect a few more. 
He wanted to do his country proud, he said, but it was hard to work with people who don't have the same motivation as him. This evening in Saipan, Ireland manager Mick McCarthy called a players' meeting which he claims degenerated into a slanging match between himself and Keane. McCarthy said he would not tolerate the level of abuse he received and so the Republic of Ireland captain was sent packing. I can't, will not, tolerate, uh, well, not being spoken to either, the, the, the level of abuse that was thrown at me, so I have uh, sent him home. Steve Staunton, who will now take over the captain's role, said the players fully endorsed the manager's decision, claiming that Keane's behaviour was unacceptable. And another senior member of the squad, Nal Quinn, said their allegiance was to Mick McCarthy and the rest of the now 22-man squad. This is a squalid and rather tragic end to the international career of Ireland's most inspiring player, and his exit from the 2002 World Cup has sent shockwaves round the footballing world. Tony O'Donoghue, RTE News, with the Republic of Ireland squad, Saipan. And 20 years later, still sprightly Tony O'Donoghue joins me by phone. Tony, good morning. <laughs> good th- morning, Neil. How who'd have thought, 20 years ago? I mean, time flies, doesn't it? Yeah, what bothers me, I hope we're not going to be talking about this for the 25th anniversary, <laughs> and God willing, if we're around for the 30th anniversary. I'm hoping, Neil, that this is uh, the very last time we discussed Saipan. Well, it, it, isn't it time to, 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 to look to the future now? It's good to look back from time to time by virtue of the fact that I thought it might have been five or ten years ago, but 20 years ago. But you, you would have gone out to cover soccer matches and preparations, as I was saying in the intro. It turned out entirely differently. Why? Because the preparations um, were, were shambolic. Because, you know, we, we discovered later on that administratively in the FAI there was all sorts of, of issues. Uh, going to somewhere like this, there was a difference in, in attitude. Roy Keane was the captain of Manchester United, had a winning mentality. And that mentality wasn't shared uh, by certainly uh, the unprofessional element of the FAI and certainly some of the players as well. Roy was on a different level. Um, and going to Saipan... Uh, while in theory, if you and I need were going for a, a nice Pacific holiday, I'd choose the island. It was amazing. It reminded me, you, you, you remember those Bounty Bar commercials, you know? Yeah. It was white sand, it was azure skies, uh, palm trees, tropical. The humidity was unbelievable, though. I, I had brought all my uh, all new shirts, and they just as soon as you put them on, you were soaking. Um, but the place was a fabulous place for a holiday, but not the place to prepare for a World Cup. Mm. Now, the only thing that perhaps might have, um, you know, suggested that it was worthwhile was, I guess you were getting the right time zone. You had the big heavy travel over you. We went from Dublin uh, on a KLM flight and touched down in Schiphol. So for the longest journey most of us were ever going to take. Uh, but he was even later, annoyed we were, on the flight, wasn't he, if I remember he, correctly, he because was. the FAI officials were in first class. No, not, not on that particular flight. That had happened previously in, during the campaign that got us to that World Cup. Uh, but Roy made his feelings known about that, yeah, and luckily okay. they saw they saw the light and and changed those situations. Look, it's not about being a, a pampered Premier League star. It's about you see it in the rugby this weekend. It's about getting the proper preparation. You don't put fellas the size of Nile Quinn in the the smallest seats. You have to make sure every you know the little details. Trapattoni used to call them, but everything matters when you're playing at an elite level. So when they got and, there, no gear, no drinks, no balls, no nets. Oh, the pitch, so called. <laughs> pitch like a car park apparently well uh, some of that is a little bit overstated in the sense that of course they had gear it wasn't the gear that was going specifically for the world cup they are like obviously pictures that we shot over there they, they were wearing the gear with the, the branding i think aircom were the uh, were the, the sponsors of the time uh, 
and they were to get the balls that you would be using during the tournament rather than I'm trying to remember now, but like, you know, obviously they'd have Umbro balls, but let's say there were Adidas balls in the tournament. So you want to play with the ball you're going to be playing with at the tournament. Those things, perhaps small enough details. And remember, they were the following week. I mean, if you were talking about anniversaries to the day today was the day that I joined the, the, the rest of the Ireland squad heading uh, from Saipan to Guam to Izumo on the northwestern uh, side of Japan mm. and the preparations there were amazing but Saipan the pitch was an absolute disgrace it was a, a baseball diamond that when Ray Tracy God rest him had gone out to, to wrecky the place they promised it would be pristine it would be the best quality football facility you can have and it simply wasn't yeah, they yeah. were watering it with, with like this crude sort of um, just big big garden hoses basically and they were over watering it in some places it was pockmarked it was rough and you know for elite players going into a World Cup final you were more likely to, to injure yourself there than you were in a match against Cameroon that's so true yeah I remember quotes from Keane at the time saying we've come here to work uh, he also said things like, "Actually, we're the Irish. We shouldn't expect much." But he says, "I'm here to play for the people of Ireland and for my family, and sod the rest." I mean, he was coming from Manchester United, so this would have been an alien environment to him. The training facilities. Yeah, I mean, I was trawling through the um, the as they are the archives. I can't believe it's twenty years either, Neil. <laughs> but trawling through the archives, and you know, Noel Quinn on that famous meeting afterwards said, uh, "We're known as the Fighting Irish. Well, we have to prove it now." But that's it. You know, that's a sort of a cartoonish figure of Ireland. And I think Roy was railing against that because, you know what, we can compete. And if we had the right attitude and the right preparation, leads to the best performance. And that wasn't a bad Ireland team when you think about it. You know, he was young, but Robbie Keane was, you know, scoring goals for fun. He scored against Germany. Um, Damien Duff was, a, a, you know, a top Premier League player and all that at that stage. So we had decent players. Shea Given in goal was one of um, you know our, our, our best goalkeepers over the, all the years of the FAI. So when you look at like some of the teams that we've had since going to some of the tournaments we've qualified since, then, remember that's the last World Cup we qualified yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't a bad sign, and and I think that's a huge regret for people. You know, we could have gone so much further in that tournament. I mean, you know, pinch yourselves. We could have made a World Cup final in that tournament because the draw was beginning to fall kindly for us. And remember when we were knocked out on penalties. By Spain, Spain yeah. that Spanish side went on very soon afterwards to become European champions and then world champions and European champions again. What so we went toe-to-toe with them. What happened, though, in that 24-hour period? Because people were running from hotel room to hotel room. There was people talking and trying to sort things out. There was a press conference given. There was a, a team meeting where McCarthy clearly called Keane out in front of the rest of the squad. What, what was that all about? Well, I made a point recently that this was probably, you know, the, the early days of, of the Internet, if you like, um, and how we communicate and, and how we use technology was actually a huge part of this story. Um, I had known that there was, there was rumblings. Uh, like, he was clearly unhappy. He had decided he was going home. Uh, I had asked for uh, an interview with Roy for RT television, uh, and he agreed to do it. Um, but the funny thing is, he had agreed for a number of other interviews as well. My radio colleague, Gabriel Egan, who was the RT commentator at the time, and he did uh, two newspaper interviews, uh, kind of feature interviews, one with uh, the Irish Times and one with the Sunday Independent. Now, uh, I think the Irish Times one was due to run on the Saturday and the Sunday Independent one clearly on the, on the Sunday. But when the copy got back to Dublin, the Irish Times went, this is 
this is dynamite. We need to go with this straight away. Yeah. Now, I had sat down with Roy, and people now remember perhaps that interview because he had asked, through an intermediary, said he's going to have a go at the facility, so he doesn't want the place to look good. Now, Michael Cassidy, obviously we called him Butch, my cameraman at the time, and he just looked around at me and he said, look, this place looks through the lens of a camera. It looks amazing. Look at the beach. Look at the hotel. It was five star. Look at the pool. You know, wh- where are we going to make it not look so good? And in the garden of the hotel, in a tropical, humid environment like that, that's where we set up the cameras. Uh, and of course, that's where all the flies were. And people remember Roy answering the questions as honestly and as truthfully as ever, yeah. but also swatting away flies as they kind of annoyed him. <laughs> Um, so he did make all those points on the TV interview, but for us to get that TV interview back to Dublin, we had to employ a guy. There was BBC and Sky there as well, and we had to employ the hotel manager's son, actually, uh, and we called him the Pigeon. He took our tapes, flew that night from Saipan to Guam, from Guam to Tokyo, made his way, had never been to Tokyo before, to the BBC Bureau in Tokyo, and they fed it back by a satellite to London first, then Belfast, and then Dublin. So the Irish Times interview got back to Dublin first. They didn't run it on the Saturday, they ran it on the Thursday, and Mick McCarthy heard about this. Uh, There were people looking for internet cafes, can you remember those? Yeah, yeah. And... uh, you know, eventually printed out the interview, called the team meeting, and clearly he was determined to challenge Roy on on what Roy had said. Now, he Roy waved a copy of the team. article in front of Keane and the team and said to him, what's all this about? And then it kicked yeah. off, and then it became yeah. McCarthy accusing Keane of faking injuries, not going to Noah Quinn's testimonial, and Keane erupted, did he? Well, if you're going to challenge Roy Keane... And particularly in an environment like that, Roy is not one to shirk a challenge, let's be honest. And he felt he had the moral authority as the captain of the team. And you have to say as well, and I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a one-man team, but he had done so much to get us to that World Cup. Uh, he was in his prime. He was, he was outstanding. And as the captain of the team, he felt entitled to raise those issues, which I think is why he agreed to a TV interview with me and the couple of newspaper interviews. Um, and when Mick McCarthy challenged him on faking an injury, on not playing for his country, this is a guy who travelled up from Cork on the train, on his own, uh, for trials, 14 years of age, 15 years of age, uh, went on the fast course, uh, worked so hard to make a career in professional football uh, and played for his country all the way through. And clearly he had lost a lot of respect for Mick McCarthy. Um, And when Mick challenged him in that situation, there was only going to be one. And he said, I didn't rate you as a player, I don't rate you as a manager, and I don't rate you as a person. Well, I wasn't in the room. I was in the room very shortly afterwards. And there are all sorts of conflicting, I'd nearly say, Mm. reports of exactly what was said. I mean, he's allegedly supposed to have said, you can stick your World Cup up your B, which which isn't a letter I'd associate with where you'd be sticking a World Cup but there you go mm, mm, mm. Uh, then at that stage of course he he walked out did he? and then subsequent to that I, McCarthy no, Mick, I mean it's very important to say this and I mean, we, we showed it on the, the news as we, we did a, a kind of a recap piece I mean, it's, it's there in, in, on, on film uh, Mick McCarthy clearly said I have sent him home people said that he, you know, he walked away he was sent home by the manager so he was expelled from the World Cup and that was the biggest story 
of that entire World Cup, including yeah. you know going all the way up to the final. It was yeah. it was remarkable. Um, he he had issues with the players as well because I remember a lot of interviews at the time and reading papers and watching it, where Keane claimed that all of the players agreed with him but kept their mouth shut. He felt that he didn't get the support of them. In fact, at one stage, he called the likes of Quinn and Staunton cowards. Well, you see, I think he was looking to the senior players. There were quite a lot of young players. I mean, Ian Hart was a, a teenager. You know, you had, as I said earlier, uh, Robbie Keane. Um, they, you, you wouldn't expect those, but the likes of Alan Kelly, Niall Quinn, Steve Staunton, they immediately, they when that press conference was hastily called, I had to rush and get Butch to, and the camera set up quickly. Um, that was not long after the meeting. And those senior players, without knowing, I guess, that they were in the room, but without knowing the full facts, are stopping and pausing for reflection to just think, where are we here? Yeah. And how do we stop this spiraling out of control? Because that information vacuum, the time zone issue, uh, you know, this, this story spiraled out of control and it was happening on, on both sides of the world. Yeah. And instead of pausing, I think Mick McCarthy wanted to draw a line under it quickly, assert his authority over the group. Um, and I think, and I heard someone else say this, and I, I thought it was a good point. You know, McCarthy loves and, and, you know, is deserving of the image of Captain Fantastic when he led us to the European Championships and uh, World Cup, but also, you know, as a manager. But there's, a, there's a, an insecurity to make at times as well, because, you know, despite his great achievements on the field and off the field, he probably wasn't the greatest player and he made the most of, of his abilities. And um, yeah. maybe that insecurity meant he, he went quickly to try and draw a line under it, yeah. call that news conference. And I think that only poured, you know, you know more, more uh, No, I just, the, I, I just wondered whether many of the players kept their mouths shut, although they would have agreed with Keane, because they wanted to play in the World Cup and didn't want to cross swords with McCarthy. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think that, you know, when you're in a team environment like that, you want to, you know, it's like the teacher in the school. You want to please the teacher. You want to make sure you're putting your hand up for um, for selection for the biggest tournament. Most of them, in fact, all of them will ever play. And were you aware over there of all of it going on back here at home as well? The talk, the conversation, people taking sides. I mean, they were calling on Bertie Hearn to get involved. Here on Lee's side, the Bishop John Buckley wanted to mediate. It was incredible at the time. Well... I don't think, if truth be told, we realised how big it was. I mean, I knew it. I mean, I haven't had a, a, a story bigger, and I won't have a story bigger than this. Um, it was huge, but the way the country was convulsed, I'd say, uh, by this, I, mean, I think you had to be back in Ireland. You know, the, the, the real story of Saipan may well have been in Ireland, in Cork and in Dublin and around the country. Um, you know, if people started taking sides, and then there was a, a fair deal of what I would say propaganda. We were over there trying to figure out was there going to be an 11th hour, a 12th hour change That's of right. mind. Yeah. Uh, that could have there, been. You know, we heard that, um, you know, a lot of people were getting involved. Alex Ferguson uh, was getting involved. Uh, Michael Kennedy, uh, the late Michael Kennedy, a lovely man who was uh, Roy Keane's advisor. He was a solicitor. Some would say that as an agent, but really he was a trusted friend. Um, and I think someone, you know, uh, who was very much regarded by all sides, um, Bertie Ahern, yes. I mean, was, oh, can you remember the rumours that, you know, J.P. McManus was flying uh, his right, private that. jet out? Yeah, I forgot um, that. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, because Roy had to, and my colleague Stevie Watson from Northern Ireland, we, you know, the hotel tried to put us off the scent. They put a, a, a car with blacked out windows and a, a suitcase out the front of the hotel where we were. Uh, oh, sorry, we were around the back of the hotel. And uh, Roy was uh, snuck away to the airport, and my colleague Stevie Watson from BBC Northern Ireland 
uh, followed the car to the airport. It's kind of like a car. I, maybe we should do Saipan the movie, you know, because there are still elements to this story that are interesting. And, and just one or two quick points, because years later, of course, Genesis, which was the report commissioned into the preparation of Saipan, vindicated much of Keane's criticism. Did they ever reconcile himself with McCarthy? Uh, they did, actually, yeah. Um, you know, the, there was a situation when, um, when Roy ended up uh, managing Sunderland. Um, McCarthy and they was going to have to, yeah. and They're going to have to play each other. And I think a phone call was made. And I think uh, the handshake was done outside of the, the public eye. So it, it had been done before the very public uh, meeting of them okay. again. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I, I do think Neil McCarthy is a very decent man, by the way, and I think he's had a, a fabulous career for Ireland and, and in the professional game. But, you know, when you look at, you know, the teams he played for and even the teams he managed, you mentioned Wolves there, who will their Premier League now, but, you know, the Millwalls, the Sunderlands or the Ipswiches, uh, he was never going to be uh, the manager of a, a Liverpool, a Manchester United, or, or an Arsenal in their in their prime. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was, I guess, the difference in levels. And there is a different level of pressure, and a different level of preparation, and a different level of performance. Just and, and I think why was that was on a different level in the in the yeah, elevator. Yeah, yeah. Finally, don't you think, Tony O'Donoghue? Don't you think that if we had an Irish squad full of players with Keane's attitude, we could actually have won a World Cup? Old coaching, Maxim Neil attitude is more important than ability and uh, Roy uh, proved that for many many years he was rejected as a, as a young player I think he wrote to all of the football league clubs in England, uh, he was too small he wasn't good enough but he really really knuckled down and tried hard but don't forget he, he worked so hard on his, on his technical side that he did develop great ability as well uh, so you need both but I think without the correct attitude you'll win nothing. Yeah, fail to prepare, prepare to fail is what he said, isn't it true? <laughs> Tony? Uh, I, I believe Matt Benjamin Franklin was supposed to be the first person to say that, but I think that quote, <laughs> now and forevermore, belongs to Roy Keane. That's a keynote. Listen, thanks for the look back, Tony. I do appreciate it. Have a great day. Cheers. Cheers, Neil. Tony, I don't know who RT soccer correspondent and proud Corkonian. Where are you? Where were you in the Keane-McCarthy debate? Where were you in the fall of the Cuffside pan? What side were you on? Text 0868104106. Back after 10. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench. Every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. Put up a Twitter poll last night, 20 years ago this week. And yesterday and today are the very significant dates. Roy Keane sent home by Mick McCarthy from Saipan at the, 20, at the 2002 World Cup. The debate, of course, never really went away. And I remember talking about it on the air. We were dealt with it in quite some detail uh, 20 years ago. Everybody had an opinion on it. Everybody was incensed either with McCarthy or indeed, I suppose, nationally. Um, I suppose Keane got an awful lot more criticism than he would have got on Lee side back in the day. But I even see texts coming in again this morning. But we asked people, who did you think was right? And many, many people voted. And for those that voted, and I say an awful lot of them would have been Corkonians, just over 80% back to Roy Keane and just under 20% of the time, uh, 24 hours. Uh, that poll is still up actually to midday today, but in the past 20 hours or so, um, 80% uh, f- uh, back to Keane and just under 20% back McCarthy at the time. So a lot of texts on that. But um, we took to the streets of Cork yesterday afternoon, or at least Kevin did, um, just asking people if they recalled 20 years ago and what their thoughts and how they felt then and how they felt now with regards to uh, the Saipan saga, if you like. Let's have a listen to this. 
frustrated for many years now regarding with the Irish setup. I made a few points over there and a lot of people weren't happy with that and ended up with a, an argument with the manager because I think the buck stops with the manager. I think it's his job to make sure things are right for the team and it wasn't and I said it and there you have it. I'm in Portugal on my holiday. E24's 2002 was also rather appropriately the day where the number one hit in the chart of the time went from this to this Uh, it was a lot of expectation you know we had a we had a team that we kind of got behind it was coming off the back of uh, like we'd been we'd been out of tournaments since uh, I, I suppose it was 94 was the last time we were in the tournament yeah. we had kind of mini golden generation we had like Robbie Keane we had Roy Keane we had Duff you know we it, it looked good like I know things were about to kick off and uh, then Keno had a little uh, um were you were you Camp Keen? Were you Camp McCarthy? Do you remember? Like it's kind of divided the city there for a, bit, a while. A bit of both. A bit of both. Um, I went on the march. You went on the march. The protest march that was up to Grand Parade and ended up in Bishop Lucy Park, <laughs> and it turned me against soccer since then. I barely watch it anymore. Really? Oh, uh, why was that? I, I took it bad. <laughs> oh, really? The whole just the fact. Were you were you pro Keen or you oh, pro completely for Roy Keen? And yeah. you know, I suppose. What happened then wouldn't happen, no. Big drama, huge drama when we were in school because we watched the World Cup in like a big hall and I think at the time, like obviously being from Cork, it was a huge thing like that Roy Keane wasn't part of it. Mm. But then like when Maddie Holland scored the goal, like things changed. Like, <laughs> were you pro- great white hope. Like, were <laughs> you pro Keane then? So? <laughs> yeah, everyone was pro Keane in Cork. Like. What age were you, do you remember, when all this happened? I was about three years old, I'd say. My mum was literally just baiting me, I'd say, when this was all happening. But you said you still remember Roy and the dogs? Um, I would have seen clips and stuff of that as I got older and stuff like that, but it was still a big talking point. I would have heard my parents talk about it at the time as well, too. I can remember it as well, too, like, you know. Do you remember if they were pro-Keen or pro-McCarthy? Definitely pro-Keen inside the bar there now as well, too. We have a Roy Keane jersey up there. His brother were coming to the bar and drink with us as well, too, you know. So very pro-Keen here now. I actually think we could have got to the final. Mm. Um, We were very unlucky in Spain, and he was probably the best midfielder in the world at the time definitely up with that with them you know mm. so uh, uh, how did this march come about do you remember I don't remember uh, it was probably pre-internet I presume but somehow it came about and I, there was a few hundred people at it and um, we all went into Bishop Lucy Park and there was a few chants and a bit of that and I suppose being a corpsman as well we were very much for him you know uh, some people said he shouldn't have left the team down but have, have you changed your feelings in the last 20 years at all? not really no. no what I remember most was everybody had Sky at the time and when he was walking the dogs and like that was a huge thing like after like getting harassed walking his dogs yeah. so that, that was, was like the new that was the new Agatha Christie like <laughs> <laughs> it was very dramatic very dramatic stuff without me now 
controversy that pretty much sums it up back in the day 20 years ago this week why thank you Kevin that's good stuff why is it that I remember Trigger the dog as much as I do about everything else about Saipan and Keane coming out of the gates in Manchester with Trigger and going for a walk and as you heard in the Vox there all of the cameramen uh, following him and he's got the head down and the gear on him and he's all wrapped up and Trigger the dog his uh, saving grace, the things you remember. Anyway, text on that, text 0868104106. I'll pick up on calls and texts. It's amazing, even 20 years later, people still have an opinion on Saipan 2002. I also want to chat with David Gray because he plays Musgrave Park on June 18th. If you're a fan, I also have tickets to give away. Three sets of two. All that to come. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. <laughs> 0818 Red <laughs> FM. I'm losing my tiny mind. I've got. You're telling me now I got Keen's dog's name wrong. Is it Tricks? Oh, why did I think it was Trigger? Because I'm an idiot, I suppose. Um, I know that uh, many people have uh, dogs. Triggs? Spell it. T R I G S. T R I G G S. All right. Okay. My apologies to Triggs the dog. Um, I don't know whether um, you know there was ever a book written about Triggs or whether Triggs actually had an Instagram page. I know Keen had an Instagram page for a while, didn't he? And he shut it down there recently, I think, didn't he? I don't know why. Yeah, Triggs. My apologies. Triggs, the, autobi- the autobiography of Roy Keane's dog by Paul Howard. <laughs> My apologies. I don't know. Trigger's a good name too, but that was more of a character in Only Fools and Horses. But anyway, I digress. Next up, ladies and gentlemen, and I will come back to Saipan a little later on, but next up, David Gray. This year's love had better last, and you know what? The love of the Irish did last. Uh, good morning to David Gray. Morning, David. Good morning. We love you, David Gray. We've always loved you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never stop loving you. <laughs> uh, do you know something? I, I, I remember reading the press way back in the day of the White Letter White Letter album being released, and in my head I see you in a tiny little flat with microphones all over the different rooms recording parts of that album in the bathroom. Did I make that up or is it true? No, it's true, yeah. Yeah, for, for the Babylon, the album version, this Clune's drums were done in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> on, on a yeah. shoestring, I believe, was that right? It, it was less than a shoestring. It was a half a shoestring. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, this was album number four. There were three preceding it and 12 in total. But those early days were a long, hard slog, right? It, was, it wasn't plain sailing, put it that way. I think I sort of entered into the, the whole thing sort of blithely with just, you know, hopes and dreams and no real plan at all really mm. I, I wasn't going to play the system or work the press I didn't it was just a sort of like an insane fool with sort of heart on sleeve I ventured forth and we had some wins and, and lots and lots of there were lots of losses uh, lots of difficult gigs lots of and it kind of got harder mm. uh, so yeah it was uh, it was character building it was character building I think um, it stood me in good stead and it's funny how when things actually finally do work out, you reflect on all the crap sort of phases with real affection. You know, I, I don't think I would have done so if it was still crap now, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I know. But like for, for a two-year period, because that album was originally released in 98, you were sitting on a masterpiece, yeah, for two whole years and nobody was listening. <laughs> well, it was slowly building. It was slowly building, um... We, we we had real momentum in Ireland, and for the first time ever, we got like proper radio play there. 
and we could see the effects of that. It went from being a gold record to platinum, then double platinum, and it just it just rolled on. It became this phenomenon that it, 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 it that it that you know that everyone knows today. But it that had a trickle down sort of effect in the UK. It emboldened the fans that were there, and and it emboldened us, and it gave us a sort of sense of belief. So we carried the fight, you know, to the UK. UK is so hard to crack, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, the yeah. People, people are so up their own backsides there in the media and everything. It's like, you know, they really think they're it, and it, 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 you know, it's so we just to, to to break that, and and then finally America after that. Anyway, it, so, it took a while, yeah. So we were sitting on this record, but it wasn't like in that intervening period we were, you know, just holding our breath and hoping something was going to happen. We were out there trying to do it, so it was a. It was a slow curve up, which was nothing but a joy, really, most of the time, because we, we, were, we were all pulling together, you know, and we could feel it starting to happen. So do you, do you hold Ireland as being responsible, do you think, then, for your ultimate tremendous success, that Ireland was that springboard to the world? Uh, no question about that. It was the launch pad. I mean, without... It, it, it's not just... It's not just the fact it gave us the success and the finance to even try and, and crack some of these other places. It was the sense of belief that it imbued. It was, you know, there was something utterly connected about White Ladder. As soon as we started to play those songs, the very first tour, people had hardly heard them. You could see the effect on the audience. Sail away, Babylon, please forgive me. This year's love, bang. It was, it was, it was massive. You could yeah. tell that there was, a, there was a science at work here, whatever we'd stumbled yeah. upon, some yeah. weird sort of chemical compound. Yeah. It was, <laughs> and then the, was labels, an the labels then sat up and started paying attention. You subsequently went on with that album, after the biggest selling album in Ireland ever, outselling, outselling you two albums. As in like nearly 400,000 copies in Ireland alone and 7 million worldwide. Do you recall the Nancy Spain's gig in 92? Uh, it wasn't 92, it was 94. Gotcha. Well, you do recall it better than I do then. <laughs> <laughs> it was 94, yeah. I, I think the, the classic Cork, Dublin, the, the, the gigs are getting earlier and earlier as each city vies for its, its rights as the sort of the champion of, the champion of Dave Gray, the <laughs> earliest champion. I think the two things sort of happened in parallel. The gigs, the first Whelan's gig was... I think beginning of February 94 and it was the next day we played the Driscoll Arts Centre in Cork then we came back a couple of months later a few months later and we played Dublin Whelan's again but we, this time we played uh, Nancy Spain and I think we played the Warwick in Galway as well Yeah, yeah so uh, yeah. you know that's, that's how it began to grow so I remember those Nancy Spain's gigs because you know Cork's a kind of you know, it's it's a kind of party town. I picked up on that immediately, uh, uh, and and it was like a late show. We were late getting on, and the the crowd were kind of buzzed up. Let's say so. It was like a kind of mad sort of drunken floaty kind of crowd that like if you went off <laughs> if you went off on a bit of a tangent <laughs> well I remember the front of the stage at Nancy Spain's which had this bizarre sort of wooden sort of carving of kind of mushrooms and things which told its own story you know it was like some strange grotto uh, and, uh, so we, we uh, yeah so it was I remember that about the gig Coon and I both saying to each other Wow, it was weird. When we went off on a bit of a tangent, people really went with us. And Clune was like, yeah, it was more like dance music. They were like really zoning in. They you were know? there, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. They described so, you so as, like, a, yeah. I think the press described you at the time as a scrawny 24-year-old with close-cropped hair shuffling on stage. <laughs> That's what the papers <laughs> well, said. I wish I was still... 
I'm working on the scrawny. I'm really clinging with all fingernails to scrawny. I'll take scrawny. I'll forget the rest. Well, thank God you stuck to the hard work and everything paid off because I also read recently that Ed Sheeran said something similar of his love of Ireland and the small clubs and the small pubs that gave him the early gigs that ultimately led to others listening and sitting up and taking notice. Isn't it true? Yeah, I don't. I don't know his particular story. So yeah, um, I mean, he couldn't I mean, get a I, kick. He couldn't get a kick in a stampede. He was busking in Ireland. He was playing pub gigs and stuff like that. Right. Okay. Well, but it's. It's. I know that he, one thing about Ed. He's definitely put the work in there. You know. So I think. I think that 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 sort of uh, skin of your teeth stuff really puts you in good stead for when it it, it starts the, when the, everyone ups the stakes and suddenly you're standing in front of 10,000 people yeah it, it's 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 you, you need to have, you cut your teeth on something you know there's nothing quite as hard as actually working down at the lower end of the scale once you've got a controlled thing with lights and pyros and god knows what else do you know what i mean you it, it's 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 much easier really you've yeah, got a lot yeah. of support yeah but um, it's just a trick of the mind to work a big crowd. You just have to believe it. But working like a bunch of drunken idiots who, who aren't that interested <laughs> with a terrible sound system and a dodgy sound man and everything else is <laughs> much harder. That won't happen in Musgrave Park, nor did it happen in the Opera House. You described Cork Opera House as your favourite venue in the world to play. Is that true? Oh, I've had so many great nights in there. I think I think um, as things fluctuated, you know, in the post White Ladder years, still the gigs in the Opera House always saw me good. There's a real roaring energy and focus. People are so uh, into it in Cork, and I love that room. Yeah, it's 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 got so much memory going back so far to those Musk, early White yeah. Ladder, yeah, yeah, those early White Ladder tours, and then all the way since the tours that I've done and the visits I've made. It's it's never been a bad gig. It's always been a great gig. So it's it's been like a constant throughout the whole thing. Even my fluctuating story within Ireland and the aftermath, the sort of white ladder thing when no one quite knows what to do. You know, the party's over and mm. there's a few you know empty cans on the table. And um, <clears throat> there was a sort of lean period where everyone kind of went off and did other things. But now it's sort of, it's all sort of coming back into focus with this. Well, I think we intended this tour as a celebration of the record for ourselves as much as anything, but with the audience. But it's ended up being more profound than that. It's ended up being just a celebration of music and life itself. That's and the, it. and the, act, yeah. the fact we can actually... And there was a frisson and a sort of supercharged energy about the Dublin shows a few nights ago. They were crazy. I mean, like, I've seen crazy. This was really crazy. It was, um, it was absolutely and utterly full-on. That's was, fantastic, it was like, yeah. It was like standing in the solar wind. It was, it was, like, it was like being buffeted by some sort of insane sort of supercharged particles. You know, you know, when you talk about wind and being buffeted and things like that, it just brings me to a point that I just wanted to bring up, and that's the Skellig album, which has just released the 12th. Do you have an interest and love or a fascination with the Skelligs and the monks out there? What's the backstory to that? Oh, well, I, I, Donald Deneen, my, my early champion in Ireland, uh, visited the Skelligs. Well, this must have been in the 90s, I guess. And we were talking after a show, and he told me about this amazing journey he'd made out there and climbing up. And, and the whole thing just lit my imagination. And that is really, with that idea of this hand-cut stairway, yeah. uh, this impossible rock, this impossible life, this impossible closeness to existence and the, the elemental uh, God, if you like, uh, it, it, I, it lit my mind. Um, and um, 
I wrote that song and and then the whole album sort of formed around it yeah i i, I, I so, so it's it's and now i've done much more research and well a, a it's a bird sanctuary you know a, a superb bird, bird sanctuary with literally tens of thousands of birds on there have you been out so there that, yet david no, no, I, it's it's not something that I've managed to do. Would you like to it do it? All, of course, it was all lined up for for lockdown, uh, but lockdown got in the way. It was all lined up for. We had a big Skellig launch thing planned. But, yeah, um, yeah, you can get a ferry got, out of the port of Port McGee. You know, that's not a problem. That, you can climb all the way yeah, up to the right. perfect I, monastic settlement above. I, I've I've had many offers, many kind offers to take me there. So well, I, I, I've, I have a house down there. You can stay overnight with me and then we can have a good <laughs> Irish breakfast the next morning. What do you think? <laughs> it could work. It might work. Yeah. You on the, I, you I, on I, the I, piano I, and the guitar and me on my yeah, island pipes. We can record. There's always a catch. There's always a catch. No, I'll play island <laughs> pipes and you can play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Are you threatening me? <laughs> no, I mean, just, it's just an offer. You can lose, lose my phone number if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd love to get out there. I really, really would, and it's something that's going to happen. And and also celebrating the Skellig album, which will be something quite different than what we're doing at the moment, is another thing that's pending. I'm just working out how to do that and when. So get I think down. we're already looking at some dates for that, uh, maybe next year. So yeah, I'd, I'd I'd love to get out there. You've because, got to plan you know, way ahead, don't you? You really do, like. Yeah, yeah. It's well. I mean, especially now when every Tom, Dick, and Harry's out there. You know, Cliff Richards out there. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, it's, <laughs> it's uh, everybody's want, touring. Yeah. Well, there was a drought. They, were dead. they are dead, but they're touring. They're touring. <laughs> they're av- they're <laughs> avatars, <laughs> David. They're <laughs> avatars. <laughs> <You're> avatars. <laughs> He's not as lively as he used to be. Is he? No, 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 they're, they're all out there. They're all out there. It's everybody. It's like, can you get a tour bus? You should be so lucky. You know. <laughs> Um, it's 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 absolutely mayhem. So trying to trying to trying to book book shows and plan things is quite complex. Get up to Skellig sometime soon, particularly if the weather's on your side. We can't wait to see you on Lee side of Musgrave Park on June eighteenth. I have some tickets to give away, but I'm sl- I'm kind of reticent to go out and end our conversation with Babylon because I read somewhere that you're sick of it. <laughs> no, that was well. That was a long time ago. Uh, I think. I think I got. I got sort of. You know, I, it was overkill. I was playing the thing about three or four <laughs> times a day for two years. It's like some form of sort of torture that you read about. You know? uh, so I, I lost contact with the emotion behind the song, which I've thankfully rediscovered. So it, it was. It's been a yes. We've had a. Babylon and I have a complex relationship, <laughs> but we're perfectly civilized over the bre- breakfast table these days. <laughs> you have a wonderful way with words, my friend. It's lovely. It's lovely to chat with you. I have some tickets to give away. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon on Lee Side. I, I, I will, and I'm looking forward to that show. So I'll see you there, Cork. Take care, David Gray. Mind yourself. All right, Cheers. Bye-bye. Lines are open. Call us 9, 10 and 11. Double passes for David Gray. Uh, live on Lee Side plays Musgrave Park June 18th. Get dialing now.
you, David Gray. We love you. I love David Gray, Neil. I have tickets from my Musgrave Park gig since before COVID. Uh, we've seen him every time he comes to the marquee. He does an unreal show. First time we saw him, it was in Killarney at the White Ladder Tour, and our daughter was born nine months later. Well, that wasn't David Gray's fault. So as you can imagine, David Gray is a favourite of mine and my hubby, Ray. Our song is the one I just played, Babylon. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary as well. Cheers, says Margot and Balafihan. Well, originally the um, tour was this supposed to be the 20th anniversary of uh, White Ladder, but of course, uh, COVID had other matters uh, to deal with, other matters to deal with regards to COVID. Uh, and then we had to push it back and he pushed it back to... 2022. I adore David Gray. Saw him in concert in San Francisco around 12 years ago. And indeed, our own Dave Mack texted me, actually. He says, I was at the David Gray gig in Nancy Spain's last time I saw him, and he was absolutely brilliant way back then. Great stuff. Well, it's even great to be just talking to musicians and giving tickets away and what have you. And I have other tickets to give away right across this week. There's a great event happening at St. Finbar's GA Club in the city, Saturday and Sunday, the 4th and 5th of June. Now, on Saturday, the 4th of June, Aslan will perform as part of their 40th anniversary tour. And on the Sunday, the 5th of June, the traditional Irish folk singer Dan McCabe will take to the stage. So we've got tickets to give away for both those gigs every day this week. So we'll do that just before midday today. Two tickets, two pairs a day uh, to see Aslan and two pairs a day for Dan McCabe. The Big Top Rockin' event at St. Finbar's GA Club on Saturday the 4th and Sunday the 5th of June. It's great to have gigs back in Leaside and everything live. Back after the break. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Yes, indeedy. Congratulations, Sean O'Regan from Clonakilty, Eleanor Crowley down Skibbereen, and Kieran McCarthy, not the councillor, from Silver Springs. So well done to all of you. Double tickets to see David Gray live in concert on Leaside. Enjoy. Um, you never know. We might be able to rustle up some more. Who knows? There's another few weeks there. Text 0868104106 for all of the business. Lots of people reminiscing on 20 years ago. It's good to look back, uh, particularly on, on Saipan, <laughs> isn't it? I'll never get over the fact that I called Roy Keane's dog Trigger. That'll wreck my own sleep tonight over that. Really and truly, those are the kind of things that wreck my head. Roy Keane, 100% right. Uh, no one taking anything seriously. No training facilities until Roy opened his mouth. FAI officials travelling first class and players and coach. It was a total joke fest. Uh, morning, he could have stayed for the team and then when they got back home, have it out with the FAI to make sure nothing like this would ever happen again. Roy walking out in the middle of their campaign wasn't going to change the conditions. And now he'll always be remembered by a lot of people, not for the great player that he was, but for the man that probably cost Ireland a place in the World Cup final, or the World Cup itself. Truth be told, I'd say Roy himself sometimes wonders what could have happened if he'd stayed. Maybe sometimes he's his own worst enemy. Uh, you got to remember here uh, that uh, Roy Keane said he was going home, then changed his mind. Uh, and then, of course, the Irish Times interview appeared the next morning. And McCarthy brought it into the team meeting. Is McCarthy sent Keane home? I don't know, maybe I'm being technical or nitpicking here, but uh, he didn't technically walk out on the Irish side. He was sent home. Roy Keane was 100% right. He has principles, a legend for standing by his beliefs. Roy, I'm taking the ball and going home. Keane never had any time for him after that. Um, and there are other unkind things here that I won't read out. Roy spoke the truth and stood by his word. 20 years later, he's still doing it. My opinions on this is that Keane made the right decision. Uh, one of the top football players in the world expected to practice in a car park is the equivalent of training a racehorse on concrete. Good for you, Roy. You stuck by your guns and never stopped. Morning, it was a disappointing time. If Roy had stayed for the sake of the team, they'd probably have beaten Spain without going to Spatos. 
and Mike got a bit further. Roy was used to was used to Alex Ferguson being totally organised. Mind you, having say, said that, he should have stayed. And there's reams and reams of these which I'll come back to throughout the course of the morning. Your thoughts are welcome. Text 0868104106. Sean, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? you? I'm good, thanks for taking the call. You actually travelled to that World Cup with uh, an Irish supporters club in London, was it? That's right. Um, I was born in London, so I'd be known as a, a Micmac, uh, a Scottish father and an Irish mother. Gotcha. And uh, Scotland weren't at that World Cup, so I was at the one in France when Scotland were at the World Cup, but Ireland were at the World Cup, and I thought I'd go along with my pals. Okay, just move around a little bit. It's not the greatest phone line in the world. So you went directly to Japan, I suppose, did you? Yes, yep, yep. Okay. Okay. And what did you were you aware of the fallout and all of the stuff that was going on regarding Keane, McCarthy, Saipan, and everything like that? Oh yeah, we were all aware of it as soon as uh, as soon as we got out there like that. Yeah, we knew all, all, all what was going on like that, you know. And there was some people were in Nick's camp and some people were in Roy's camp. And where and were you on all of this at the time in two thousand and two? Uh, I'm just trying to get me kicked out of court like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> over the county bounds. No, I'll, I'll sit on the fence on that one. I was, as I say, I, was, uh, I think there was fault on both sides, to be honest. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll stay neutral on that one. There was fault on both sides, you think, in the sense that Roy did the interviews, um, yep. McCarthy called and him it. out in front of the players, and before you know yep. it, it just kicked off. Yeah. 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 But how how was how was the World Cup for you guys and the and the the, the Irish supporters that went without Keane then? Well, I mean, we 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 had a great time like that, you know. I mean, went to Ibaraki and Nagata, and you know, we uh, partied hard and just enjoyed it like that, you know. And uh, you know, uh, met friends for life. It's a funny story actually, because you guys obviously clearly booked into hotels as you went along. Somebody got a room to themselves. Tell me that one. Yeah, um, yeah, we all got paired up. I mean, I got paired up with a London Irish lad um, and uh, uh, still friends. I'll tell you a bit quick story about that afterwards. But uh, yeah, there's one lad, uh, Mick Joyce, another London Irish lad, and uh, he got a room on his own. And some uh, somebody sort of said, "Right, you're in the Roy Keane suite," like that. So you know, <laughs> you know so the rest of you got teamed was, off or paired off. But of course, yeah. Keno didn't. He had his own hotel room. Subsequently, <laughs> the Roy Keane suite. And the yeah, other story. Yeah. Well, the other story was that the, the fellow I met, uh, uh, his mum was from Fermanagh, his dad was from Longford, and uh, he came to, when I got married in Cork in uh, 2004, um, he said to my wife at, uh, at the wedding, is there any uh, free single women here or something like that? And I said, yeah, that lady there over there, uh, was one of my wife's friends, and uh, they ended up getting married. She's from Foster and Kerry. <laughs> Small world, so isn't it? Yeah, so there was something that came out of uh, Saipan with me sharing a room with that fellow. You ended up getting married to a Kerry woman. Yeah, and also I say you're probably still repaying the bill from travelling to the World Cup to this day, are you? Uh, well, it was it was expensive out there, but it was you know it was a great experience and a lovely country. The people were very friendly. It was yeah, uh, yeah. It was brilliant. Would you have thought that it was twenty years ago? Uh, yeah, well, time has flown like that, you know. Doesn't but, it fly? Uh, yeah, it is quite emotive, especially on these side. You better believe it. And the texts are coming in thick and fast again this morning. Cheers, Sean. Thanks for the memory. Strangely enough, as bad as the preparations were supposed to be, Ireland performed very well. And we're unlucky not to got into the semi-finals or maybe even the finals, says Anthony. Yeah. And the unanswered question there would be, if Keane had been playing, would we have beaten the Spanish? 
and moved on. The FAI are worse now than they were then. Open your eyes. Roy was right. He's the best sportsman this country has ever produced, full stop. Don't forget that Delaney from Waterford went on television and said there was no way back for Keno. That was the death knell. If we had more Roy Keynes and a good manager, we would have gotten somewhere, I suppose. The FEI are worse now than they were then. Strangely enough, uh, Roy Keynes sighed all the way, says Lisa in y'all. Roy all day long and still believe he was right. Delaney proved that, Delaney proved that they were all about the money and the high life and not football or soccer. Uh, I was at home with my parents. I was siding with the man himself, Roy Keane, says Elaine, uh, back uh, 20 years ago. My personal opinion is the other senior players lacked the integrity to speak up and to back Roy. If I remember correctly, Roy also commented on players travelling commercial while administrators travel business class. He seemed to have had a valid point when we look at what happened later in the FAI. Uh, we need people to speak out and highlight perceived injustices. Yeah, I remember in one or two of the interviews, and I think it might have been in the in the um, uh, Irish Times interview with Tom Humphreys, he also said that they weren't training enough. You'd think that we could work for an hour or two a day training. It's all, all very well going off playing golf or going out to the pubs and clubs and rocking in at seven o'clock in the morning. Of course, he didn't do that, but he was, I don't even think he, I don't even think he was critical of the team. He was saying fair play to them. And if they want to go out and party, that's fine. But let's do a bit of work while we're here. And one final one, I traveled to the World Cup. Oh, that's okay. That was a text that came in from, uh, from Sean and he was subsequently on the air. Back to the phone lines we go. Michael, good morning. Hello, good morning. How are you this, doing? This should be just destined to the, uh, history channel, is it? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, at this stage, you know, it, it, it's going on too long. No, I know that, but I'm only marking it as the 20th anniversary, you see. And it was a big story on Side 20 years ago today. Oh, sure, it was massive, not just on Side, but, you know, countrywide and, and, and more. It was the biggest story of the World Cup at, 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 that, at that time. And probably of all the World Cups, has there been ever a bigger story than our star player, captain, going out, and then having a row with the manager and the team and coming home in the huff. You know, it's, um, I don't think there was a bigger story if you go back to any of the World Cups other than the okay. Jules Rimet getting, getting stolen. It was, it, it well, was uh, maybe was the hand of God a World Cup story, I wonder? Maybe not the same. Oh, yeah. no, that, well, that was huge as well. Yeah. But tell me, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not sensing a whole lot of sympathy for you, from you for Keane, am I? No. No, no. Um, look, at he was a professional player playing with a top club, used to being uh, pre- given the prima donna treatment, and rightly so. Everywhere United went, they had a la carte menu, the best training pitches, the best doctors, the best physios, and he expected that with the FAI. Now, we all know the FAI has been flawed for years, even going back to the PJ O'Driscoll days when an entourage of maybe 40 officials used to go on a trip to South America with the League of Ireland team mm. because all the pro players would want to be away on holidays. And we'd be subsequently hammered 5 and 6 and 7 nil by all the South American teams. And that's why we were never seeded, um, you know, for, for top uh, yeah, international but competition. I was talking about some of the quotes that Keane made at the time. He said, I'm here to play. I'm here oh, for listen. the people of Ireland. I'm here for my family. That's why I'm here. We're here to work. Oh, listen, he, he was such a professional to, to, to you know, the, uh, 100%. When he saw other players just taking their, their foot off the accelerator from the top 
down. It just infuriated, infuriated him. Yeah. And when he got there, you must remember that, look, we've all travelled and sometimes we'd be missing the case or uh, we'd be held up, there'd be a delay. We wouldn't be happy with the accommodation uh, that, that, you know, that we've received. I think in this instance, our instance, what happened was they arrived in Saipan. I think they knew that Saipan wasn't going to be great. It was only an interim stopover for 24 or 36 Yeah, but the kit, was, the kit was a week late. Oh, listen, it, it, the kit was, it was a week late, but listen, Saipan, they were only staying in Saipan for so long. I think had Roy have been a little bit more, you know, let's say, listful, and the FAI, Mick McCarthy, and somebody above him, and a few of the senior players, got around them and was able to talk to him, he'd have stayed. Um, it was just, it was bad management throughout. Uh, everybody was at fault. Roy himself, uh, it, it seems he went over with ants in his pants. Because, because you he said that already. he shouldn't have travelled in the first place. Why are you saying that? Oh, well, look, it, 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 we wouldn't be having this conversation if he didn't travel. He, it seems to me that Roy was missing for certain matches. Um, Iran, the Iranian match comes to mind. And I can only imagine that the, the security advisors at Old Trafford told him not to travel. That, look, it's too dangerous. Uh, okay, well, uh, then that is nothing. That wasn't his call. What, what, what are, what are, was there an issue with the well, Nile Quinn testimony? Been, uh, well, it would have been his call if he'd have said, look at. I'm travelling. John Giles, Jackie, uh, Jackie Carey, uh, uh, loads of other international players used to travel by boat, by ferry, to come over here to, to Ireland to play in friendlies. So that was their call. Uh, um, but it was Roy's call uh, not to play in Iran. At the end of the day, the security advisor tells me, I don't think you should travel. When the rest of the team and the, the and the, the hierarchy are travelling. It was his call. Mm. But getting back to Soy Pan, I just feel that had Roy been a little bit more, um, let's say, not so bullheaded, mm. there was more leadership from the from the management and from the the senior players. I mean, I've read uh, Noel Quinn's autobiography, and he just goes on that it seems to him that he's very very sorry that. He couldn't talk to, 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 to Roy, but Roy was dismissive of him and Staunton because they thought that uh, yeah. Mick McCarthy had him in the pocket. Yeah. So it was a question of bad leadership. We, we Certainly our best player, our best, because there's no doubt in the world, at that time, Roy Keane was one of the best players. Okay, yeah, I think we all agree with and, that, yeah. yeah. And, and that's not a problem, but it's, and only Roy can answer this question. But if you ask Roy now, would you handle it different today? I nearly 100% say Just yes. a fast, he'd say yes, do you think? Okay, and that leads me to a very fast response to this. A texter says, Roy was completely wrong. A captain should never walk out on their team. Well, look, I'm ex army and, you know, there's team leadership. There's fellas, you know, you come and go, is he a good team? You know, is he a good team player? Roy, I'd say, would have been awkward because it, the, the two factors in his game, you must remember, was a, he was a fantastic footballer. But B, his driving force was aggression. And So do you believe that you know, it is wrong of a captain to walk out on their team? 
Oh, without a doubt. Okay. I mean, you have to put your hand up and say, yes, okay. he was wrong for Walker. Okay, cheers for that. Thank you, Michael. Back after 11, text 0868 I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. 104 to 106 Red FM This is the Neil Frienderville Show And we're reminiscing this morning doing lots of different things but 20 years ago of course the city was very much a buzzing with uh, Roy Keane coming back from Saipan I was amazed actually as to you know the story itself and how time flies was it really 20 years ago on air that we gave away a trip to the World Cup back in 2002 and you know who won it? Stephen did Stephen good morning Morning, Neil. How are you? Twenty years. Does it feel like that to you? It doesn't. To be honest, no, it doesn't. Like I was only thinking of it last week. No, since we seven the lads. It's twenty years since we arrived in Japan. Wow! And and on air, you won a trip. What was the trip? A trip for two to work our Irish World Cup games. It trip. It trip to two uh, to uh, Japan and then um, stop off in Singapore for three days on the way over. Three weeks in Japan. And two days back in uh, Singapore again. Oh and back my to London, God, back it must have been an absolutely dream trip, was it? <laughs> oh, I think I'm still even talking about it today, to the legend stuff, but it's just unbelievable trip. It must have cost a fortune at the time for two. Yeah, for yeah. And did you have, not, did you have to put a hand in, your, hand in your pocket at all, no? Well, our flights, no, our hotels, our transfers, our match tickets were all covered. I, just, I had to hit the credit union and all right for a couple The days. rest, but it was a trip that you wanted to make anyway. Oh my God! I, I have an album at home now. There's 200 snaps alone in in, in that. Okay. You know? What and, uh, games did you go to? We got to Cameroon, uh, German German game in Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Arabia game was the last one we had in um, Yokohama Stadium. Okay, Stadium. so you came back and Ireland progressed. That's right, and, and we we wanted to go, but if we had to do that, it was cost us another couple of thousand because we'd have had to lose. <laughs> All our other flights and know, trip back yeah. home, you know. I know, yeah, yeah. No. Tough call to make. But what did you make at the time over there with regards to Keane and McCarthy and the team and what have you? We, we, we were in shock. Jesus, like all, all, all the bad rumours that, that were going around. But then a couple of days later, then the rumours changed in that Michael Flatley or someone is flying him out, flying him back to Japan in his private jet. That was the talk. Yeah, I don't know whether it was Flatley. JP McManus certainly yeah. had a big jet that wanted to take him out. Bertie Ahern was going to be sent to broker a deal. Even the Bishop of Cork at the time, Johnny Buckley, picked up the phone, spoke to Keane. I mean, and the phone lines at the radio station were absolutely burning up. It was an incredible time. I can imagine that even even the Japanese people over now they have much English, but they were saying, "Keen, come back, Keen, come back, go away." He says, "Why? Yeah. Why? Where did you hear this? Where did you hear this?" Yeah, and yeah. We all got excited, and we were excited, and then, then then we found out, and it wasn't it wasn't true that um, you know. So, how did you feel about? It? I mean, what side did you come down on? Being a proud Corkman, I suppose Keen's was it? I'd be I'd, I'd be on Keen's side, as he says, like it's like training on the uh, KRP. We we had to go along the road, even though. You know, Rhino and them, um, you know, we, we, we stuck with Ryan and uh, I suppose the bad things, everybody was against kind of Mick McCarthy at the time out there, the guys that we know, and, um, you know, we, we were all right. So, um, what about the rest of the trip then, besides the matches themselves? What did you, I mean, you were there three and a half weeks. What did you do? Well, we, we did a game every week, so what we done, as we know others, we, 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 we were fine getting the tube and the train to this place in Tokyo and finding Irish pubs. <laughs> And have having having sessions, and <laughs> I always I, I I was always into uh, the sumo wrestling. So um, 
<laughs> one day we were off and we went to the dome and the so the sun was over there, so we were watching away. So we got up we got up at half time and we started going out to the corridor and looking at the photographs. And um I look at the photographs and of the of the champions come by and um just this man stood behind me and he says, You like you like sumo? I says, I like sumo. I says, I, I watch it all the time on your sport every year and I follow it. Where you come from? He says. I says, I come from an island called Ireland. He says, I do not know where this place is. I've been to Scotland. He says, I'm right across the right across the river from that island. <laughs> oh, I know this country now. I know this country now. <clears throat> and um, he said to me, and it was me, me, it was with me now, Victor, and a couple of doves that we got to know. He says, would you like to meet Sumo? <laughs> I said, what? I said, no, big time, yeah. <laughs> Follow me. So we were going down corridors, down lifts, and here and there. And then we went in, and there they were all training. He was like he was like the, the manager now, the coach. Yeah. And we were in shafts, no, our tops and our shafts, no, and then um, our bun bags and then um, our, our cameras. And uh, <laughs> I said, I said to him, I said, can I have a go off of this guy here? <laughs> You're joking me. I'm serious. I have to focus at home. Me, me wrestling this room was. And uh, can I have a go off of him? So he says something. He says, come on, so I get it. I know, I know the rules of it. You your knuckles, go down with both hands, then you go in. So I gave the camera to one of the lads. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I said, I'm going to grab him by the nappy, you know, I'm going to try and lift him. And I'm going to put on the face, and you take a photograph. And, I, <laughs> and that's true. That's what happened. And they have them all. He could have broken your neck, man. Yeah, sure. He had to catch me first. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was the highlight. So, who travelled with you? Did you say Victor, was it? Yeah, me said Victor Cotton, yeah. So, oh. t- 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 uh, you, when I won it, you could bring a partner with you. So, I couldn't bring the wife at the time because my son was just born, Aaron. <laughs> okay. Aaron Hill, the snooker player. All right. <laughs> I know Aaron Hill, the snooker player. <laughs> Amazing. How's things going for him? He, he's on there now at one o'clock. He's back at Q school. He just lost his talk out there last month. He was unlucky last week not to get back on. It's so. competitive, isn't it? Oh, it is, it is very, it is very hard, Neil. Like, Jesus. Fair At law come good, though. As Keane would even, say, practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Even the wife is saying to me today, 20 years later, oh, what a trip I missed out on <laughs> because I, your son was born. What I went through for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? what, did you like the food out there? Do you know the food now, Neil? We we couldn't. We, we had to find a Chinese restaurant, and I, I I'd be asking for a, a chicken fried rice. And they said we don't do that here. The Chinese don't so, eat that. Yeah. So every morning we get up, then we'd have to go into a restaurant around the corner of the hotel, and then um, <laughs> the menus were on, on the counter. So I said hot tea, cold tea. I said hot tea and egg salad. We get every morning. Would you not feed in the Irish pubs, though, Stephen? No. Well, do you know what? No, we found. It was very expensive over there for a point. It was, it was a ten off for a point. Back then? And, um, yeah. And um, we were we searching our own searching. So we found this Japanese bear. 750 for a point and a half picture. <laughs> so there was, there was myself and Victor and about another six doves that we got bodies now today. And um, we made our local every night. <laughs> yeah. And um, we got to know the manager and everybody. Somebody told me we were going away. They started wrong crying. Then. <laughs> Jesus, all the Japanese managers. and uh, Jesus, oh. <laughs> they gave us badges and memorabilia to keep. I still have my home and um, then uh, when Japan was playing then there was no Europeans or anybody outside Japan could go into the bear. So I I, I got to know him so well. Now his his name is Yazuya Yatamoto. And um I I said, You have to leave us in man. I said, We'll give you a lot of money here every week And uh, he's a go behind man, ask management over his head and they like, Yeah, okay, so you can come come. 
such as well. <laughs> no, uh, nobody left into the Irish pub when Japan were playing. No, the Japanese pub. Oh, the Japanese. Why was that? It's just, it's just like beyond to know. I don't know. It's just, it's just their, their culture only known as. But seeing that we got to know him, he, he says, "Okay, look, he, just you only." And um, yeah, it sounds to me as if the undying memory, though, is the sumo wrestler and the nappy, and not the soccer. <laughs> oh, I have that photograph at home, and I, I never done another one. I'd be telling people about it; they don't believe me. Like that. <laughs> yeah, and great story, great story. <laughs> Listen, it's good to catch up. It really is. Regards to you and all the family and Aaron and the snooker. Great to chat. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for Cheers, Pat. Take care. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818-104-106. Red FM. Probably won't get to all of the texts and comments on the 20th anniversary look back at Saipan. Mind you, Paddy does say, please don't forget Niall Quinn had a go at all of Cork in his own autobiography, saying about Roy and Jack Doyle asking, did everyone in Cork have a problem or did everyone in Cork have problems? So it's a rather disparaging to remark, remark to make in his book. But, you know, we look at it through adult eyes 20 years ago. But you imagine 20 years ago how kids felt about it, young kids who were very excited about the World Cup, probably Man United fans, big fans of Roy Keane, and all of a sudden their hero wasn't playing in the World Cup. Must have been devastating for very young people. Um, I know that Tommy uh, Gorman actually asked him that, I think, in one of the... The interviews for RT, what about the kids, Roy? And I think Roy said something on the lines of they'll get over it. Uh, but this is just a reflection, as we call it in the trade, a montage uh, of reports that were knocking around uh, 20 years ago this week. This Irish team has achieved a magnificent success. It's going to be a magnificent trip. Around one Ireland two, and Ireland on the way to the World Cup. Captain Roy Keane, perhaps the world's greatest midfield player, certainly the player most responsible for Ireland's qualification for the World Cup finals, was threatening to abandon the side at the very moment he was needed most. Angry over what he regarded as poor preparation by the Ireland management, Keane was nevertheless persuaded to come back on board, but he publicised his frustration in a series of media interviews. Manager Mick McCarthy summoned his rebellious captain to a squad meeting. Harsh words were exchanged. McCarthy, believing his authority as manager was being undermined, decided to send Keane home. Now returning to our top story, the news that Irish skipper Roy Keane has been sent home from Saipan. We're joined again by Tony O'Donoghue, who I understand is now on video phone. Tony, can you hear us? I can indeed, Eileen. I'm here in Saipan and uh, shockwaves still reverberating around this small island and I'm sure all across Europe and the world as well. The team and the media are due to leave Saipan uh, very early hours of the morning, around 7 o'clock. But that's a flight to Izumo, which will be the team's uh, next stop in their World Cup preparation. It's a a base in Japan and they're there for a week. So Roy's route home will have to be via Tokyo, uh, through to London perhaps, or Amsterdam, and then on to to Dublin or Cork, or Manchester indeed. And uh, it it seems that Roy won't be uh, making the team's flight tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. He'll have to wait on until at least tomorrow evening here in Saipan. So any reaction from Roy will be out of Saipan and not from uh, from Dublin uh, or Manchester or indeed from Cork. This evening, in his first major television interview since his dismissal, Roy Keane speaks about the events which led to his departure from Ireland's World Cup squad, how the controversy has affected him, 
and whether there's any possibility of him playing for Ireland in Japan. He spoke this afternoon to Tommy Gorman. Obviously there's a lot been said over the last few days. Um, I'm not really here to get anybody on my side. I think it's important that people know the truth. Um, the final straw was when uh, I was accused of being disloyal, faking injury and uh, going against my teammates in front of everybody. And um, I wouldn't accept it. And uh, I still don't accept that. The first night we got there, there was, a, there was a, an evening meal and uh, Mick got Martin, the doctor, to speak about certain things, you know, to be careful of the sun and some block, of course, and what drinks to drink. And uh, when he was talking about the drinks to take, he went, oh, they're, they're not here yet. But, and he continued, and I was sitting there and I thought, they're not here yet. And then Mick came back in and Mick said about the, the training kit hadn't arrived. Um, the, the training pitch wasn't as good as he, as he thought. And as soon as Mick said that, I thought, it must be bad. There was no balls, of course. They should have been there on Thursday or Friday or something. I think this was on the Saturday evening when we got there, or the Sunday evening. I, c I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't. Um, that's not being prima donna. It's not being pig-headed. That's just being honest. You know, we're preparing for the World Cup finals. And um, I was disappointed straight away with that. He spoke to the press afterwards. He says, I cannot and will not tolerate the level of abuse that was thrown at me, so I have sent him home. Um, there was a lot of other sub-stories going on to this, of course, and here on Side and in Ireland, there were many people, I think it's fair to say, trying to broker peace at the time. I remember talking about that or to try and organise a, a, a truce. But one of the people that was in big demand back then would have been Noel Spillane, the soccer journalist in Cork with the Echo and the Examiner and wrote, wrote for an awful lot of newspapers and uh, covered soccer and covered Keane's career all the way from, from Cove, I think, if I'm right. Joins me by phone. Noel, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you? I'm well. So you were being pulled from pillar to post. Your phone was hopping, um, and there was demands on your time from news media outlets from all over the world. Was there? It was a fairly incredible. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I had been telling uh, um, uh, Kevin Galvin, the producer, this morning that I had kind of uh, done a budget to try and get to Japan, and I produced it to my my editors at the time, and unfortunately, they felt it was a bit too expensive. Uh, I was I was in a bit of a of shock really when I didn't get to go to yeah, Japan. But yeah. then in hindsight, it proved to be a blessing in disguise because I was I suppose uh, I was the only kind of senior soccer reporter left in the country. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you were holding the floor, Things exactly. Things just took off. You know, it was an incredible week. Uh, so, I was getting phone calls from all over the place. Yeah, massive international interest in it, isn't it true? There really was. Well, it was because it was, I, you, I never knew who was coming, who the next call was coming from. I mean, we all kind of have a, a thing in our head about wouldn't it be great to get, you know, just to get on uh, BBC Five Live just once or twice. Yeah. And I, I built up quite a relationship with, with uh, Mark Pugash. He, he must have been ringing me every second, you know, once or twice a day. And he updates, what's the reaction back home? Is he going to go back out? You know, why would he make the decision not to play in a World Cup? And it just went on and on. And one, one morning, uh, I got a call from uh, Toronto Radio in Canada, downtown radio in Canada. And I can't remember if it was just a while back. But yeah. it, it was a program like Bill and Bob. And I got on and I could hear that there was an ad break and there was down the weather report and the traffic and all this. But there was an ad for um, baldness on the program. <laughs> 
And <laughs> one of the guys came back to me and said, well, no. And the first thing I said to him, well, Bob, if this goes on much longer, I'm going to be investing in that product for baldness <laughs> because I'm snowed under with work here. I can only give you about five minutes of my time because I have one or two other calls as well I coming well in at the imagine. moment. And here are 20 years later and they see even the texts and the comments still come in. It's just one of those stories that everyone had an opinion and a side to, didn't they? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I, I was disappointed that Roy didn't play in the World Cup. I felt, you know, he, he was club, he was team captain, probably our best player at the time, and yet he had made a decision to deny himself playing in the World Cup. And obviously, now in hindsight, we know full well that he just played in, in one, really. Yeah, um, I, I understand but, you that. Know, he, he's, so, yeah. He's, he's so driven and so self-motivated. And as captain, he probably felt... You know, if I don't stand up to this, the, the training facilities were, were integrated, really. I mean, they've talked about the car park for the training facility. But my my point to him at the time is, why would you deny yourself the chance to play in a World Cup finals? When it's over, when we get knocked out in the quarterfinals or wherever, which we, we're never going to win it, when you come back, then let then let it, then let all hell break loose. What did but he say? Because that, that's not how Roy Keane rolls. Like, how did he respond to that question? Um, I think he, he, as I said, his mind was made up, and when the, when all the negotiations to get him to fly back out fell through, and like obviously where McCarthy made the decision as, as team manager to send him home, that was it. That was the straw brought the cameras back, because for for a time, for two or three days, there was, there was a strong possibility that he was going to go back because yeah. there was a lot of people in the wings in football mediating on his behalf and trying to broker a deal to get him back out in time to play in the first game. But it, it just didn't happen. Why didn't it happen, do you think, um, in that regard, Noel? Is it because many people were trying to broker to get him back out there, but McCarthy stopped it, is it? Well, I think, yeah, McCarthy didn't want him around because, uh, obviously, there must have been an almighty row between the two of them. Which should have been you know, in private, I, shouldn't it, Noel? That was no. That was Roy Keane's point. If, you're, if we're going to have a dust yeah, down, it was let's do it in private. Yeah, I was at a team meeting. I mean, McCarthy, as manager, he'd been manager for quite a while at club level. Obviously, very experienced in, in in football management. The wise thing to do there would have been just to call up to the Keane's room and just have a, the two of them have a discussion and they mightn't have got out of hand. But like when, when you're being ridiculed like that in front of everybody, it's hard to keep a lid on it. And yeah. it obviously just exploded like... Yeah, and, and I remember, and it's it's lasted to this day. You know, there's no doubt about that. Kane and McCarthy just don't get on. You could see that. I think was it the Dutch match where Kane had one of his best games. And, the handshake. Uh, the handshake, yeah. I mean, that, that picture told a thousand stories. It was a very reluctant you know? hand touch, wasn't it? <laughs> it was indeed. It was yeah. a bit like Brian Cody and Henry Shefflin the other day in the hauling. How do you how do you think Keane thinks about it now, 20 years later? Because remember at the time he said, he, he said he was upset, he was worried, and he was, you know, concerned for his family back in Cork. Do you remember that? And his, fa- know, and his yeah, own yeah. children and his family in, in, in Manchester. It was yeah, he, 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 he would have been worried about the repercussions of it and it was his decision type of thing. And what was, what was good to follow was going to be. But I'd say, I don't know, just kind of knowing why, I'd say within, let's say, six months or a year of it, it was just water under the bridge and the next challenge was in front of him at Man United and he went flat headlong. And, you know, as I said, his, his self-drive, his self-determination, his everything about him 
is a steely kind of willingness to yeah. succeed. Yeah. And that, that's why United won was there seven seven Premier Leagues in ten years under him yeah. as captain. Yeah. No one else has done that. That's, and look at United now. You know, that's phenomenal. That's a phenomenal record for any footballer. To yeah, have. would you think he was disappointed with his teammates? I mean, he was the captain. It was his voice. It was his job, his responsibility to voice concerns, but nobody backed him. Oh, I, yeah, I'd say that that was a bit of a shocker. But then anybody who backed him would have probably uh, uh, automatically fallen over with Mick McCarthy yeah, as well. I know, I know. You I know, know what I mean? There was, a, there was a gulf between the two of them. And if you took sides either way, you were going to suffer. But I'll still go back to the point that I, you know, I, I, even to this day, um, he, he should have, I felt he should have stayed on, played in the finals, uh, had that on the CV as it were, and then when, when they got back to Dublin, let, 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 let rip and things would have started to improve. Yeah, I know. That's the I, I mean, things have certainly improved. I mean, it's a long time ago, but the, the preparation now that the international team have under a variety of managers has yeah. been top last really. The facilities are way better. The travel arrangements are better. Everything is better. And really. that's that's an epitaph to Keane though, isn't it? It will of course, yeah. That's a legacy to him. Yeah. Well with a legacy is a better word. A good one. You can you can be proud of that like. Yeah. And just finally, what was the atmosphere like in Cork with regards to this story twenty years ago this week or even today? To, to be honest with you, I, I felt there was it wasn't oh, um it wasn't crazy, you know what I mean? I, I thought it was just quite quite normal, really. There was no major outcry. Anybody I spoke to at the time were probably just a bit flabbergasted that it happened. And then, of course, you had people drawing this, singing about, uh, well, he's from Cork, what do you expect? Yeah. You know, this kind of thing from, yeah. from Dublin media people in particular. But there's always that, that kind of divide. There was a lot Cork of national Dublin. criticism, not so much on Lee's side for obvious reasons, but nationally he yeah. got a bit of jip. He got a fair amount of jip. It is, it is, and it's like at the time, they probably felt it was justified, you know, when, yeah. you're, when you're captain. Yeah. In their eyes, he walked out, but in actual fact, he didn't walk out, he was kind of sent out. Yes. Sent home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But it was a pity that the, the whole reconciliation um, efforts didn't materialise, and he, he got back out and played. But there was that I chance. Mean, there was a chance, definitely. There was, it was quite, uh, there was a good possibility of it happening, but then McCarthy. From the from the road he had had and the criticism he got from Keane felt he couldn't have him back because that would undermine his own position. And the rest is history. God knows how far we'd have got exactly. with Keane, you know. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, well, I don't think they'd have won it, though, to be honest. Probably, I mean, we got to the quarterfinals in in Italy, and and could have put it. I think if we were playing anyone bad Italy that night, we might have got into the semi-finals. Because, you know, you just lost one nil to Italy who were a yeah, great fight at the I time. I thought it was going to have a heart attack. the Olympic Stadium yeah. up against it. You know, all yeah. the odds were against Ireland and yeah. they nearly beat them. Yeah, all but right. That's, that's football, isn't it? It's, it's great to look back on it. It's wonderful and to it was look a, back. It was a really ex- exciting time. Yeah, OK. Good to catch up. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. No, appreciate it as always. Great. No problem, Noel Spillane. Text 0868104106. The last word I'll leave on this anniversary of Kino and Saipan is to the man himself. I couldn't believe we, we went to Saipan to train when the island doesn't have a football pitch. You tell me, what are we doing in Saipan without a football pitch? And that was two weeks before the tournament. It was a time of relaxation, but barring injury, you need to train on a secure training ground. And of course, the first one or two days, we picked up one or two injuries. It's, it's as simple as that. The evidence is there. The Wednesday I spoke to two press lads who had a bit of time for two decent riders, I think, Tom Humphreys and Paul Kimmage. 
and I made my point to him that you know I was disappointed with certain things and towards the morning there was an interview gone in the Times which I'd sort of read myself and it was fine and towards the night there was a meeting organised and uh, as soon as the meeting was called Mick said oh certain people aren't happy things and I says I, I, you know I'm not which I, which I told him the other night in a private meeting anyway and I, I said to him at the time oh, why can't we do this in private he says well you've made it public by your and he pulled out an interview from his back pocket as if maybe to catch me off guard I said I've already read it and I've, I, stick, I stand by what I say it's one or two players sitting in a press conference saying oh we couldn't believe it and Cowards. Cowards sums them up, and I mean that. I will not go back on that. Mm, referring to some of the players as cowards. Morning, actually, Sean Gordon was back on. He said, I forgot to say when I spoke to you earlier that I felt sorry for fellow Corkman Colin Healy, who was on standby and was called up and then stood down when Roy changed his mind. When it all blew up, it was too late then for Colin to be registered with FIFA and travel to the World Cup. Text 0868104106. Uh, pick up the phone on 0818104106. Back after the break. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818104106. If you have contributed, don't worry. I'll jump in and out of more texts, uh, both texts to the show and also some Twitter texts. The Twitter ones are somewhat different because I think the Twitter texts are giving me and the Twitter comments are giving me an idea of how people outside of Cork thought, thought about Keane and the whole uh, Saipan saga 20 years ago. Whereas on Lee's side, we kind of, I think we kind of circled the wagons a lot more, if I remember correctly. Now, I'm not necessarily saying they're 100% accurate on that. Maybe some of the texts are from Cork where they say Keane was wrong. Captain should never walk out on the team. Um, but anyway, I will come back to it, I promise you that. But I mentioned earlier on this morning the sad death of the uh, Cork musician Cottle Collin, the lead singer from bands like Micro Disney and Fatima Mansion, sadly passed away at the age of 61 and our thoughts are with his family and friends. Um, it's amazing actually because I played some Micro Disney on the air some years back and I have to say it sounds as good now as it did 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. It really does. It just stands up uh, to the test of time. Here's Town to Town. Micro Disney's Town to Town. Now, the quality of that doesn't do justice to the song itself because I had to lift that actually from vinyl and that's why it sounds kind of all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Got Jim Comet from Comet Records. Jim, good morning. Hi Neil, how are things? It sounds as good now as then, doesn't it? It's timeless. It does, yeah. I was only, I was just listening to it there, and it, it, it really, really does. It, it's, it's actually very sad. We're listening to it for the reason we're listening to it mm. because you know it, it's like, you know, not, none of us saw what was coming yesterday, and I think we're all in shock. And it, you know, it's, I, I suppose something like like that does make you look like. I mean, I, I knew him forty years, and like you know, I know his music for that long, and you, it, it's it's just awesome if you look at his body of work and what he's done, yeah. and the various thing musical things he's done. You know, he was like, I remember like Michael Disney started in Cork as a five piece. They went from a five piece to a two piece. They went from a two piece to another five piece in London, and then. Like, you know, after doing that, he went on to do the Fatima Mansion. Yeah. He's done a load of solo albums himself. He's been really prolific recently, actually. You know, he did the Alcan stuff. He did the Telefiche stuff. Yeah, I mean, he did, done, I mean, he I think it's fair to say that prolific almost pretty much right up to the end because oh, yeah, uh, Colin Collin, they, they played, um, they played Cypress Avenue only a couple of years back, didn't they? They did. Um, what he did was um, they decided to um, just get Michael Disney back and do 
a couple of shows. I think they, they did a show in the National Concert Hall. They did a show in the Barbican in London. And they did a final one here on Cork and Cypress Avenue, which is, I think he got a lot of help from Gary Sheehan up in Dublin in mm. the Concert Hall with that now as well. But I can remember, it, it was, and it was very, very emotional. I remember the night of the gig in... Um, in Cypress Avenue, he went right back and he did a song called Pink Skinned Man, which was their second single that they released. They released that as a two-piece, but I can remember they used to have a practice room in Dawn Square, above, I think, Healy's Bakery, where oh, they... I know it. Yeah, where the three shop is now, but I remember, we used to all, like, you know, all, all punks or whatever, we'd all kind of hang out in Dawn Square, sitting in the middle of the square, but I can remember you could hear Micro Disney playing that song up on the practice room and oh, I remember man. there was real real excitement in the city that they were actually going to put out a record because um, you know like like it was you, you were absolutely delighted that you had bands in the city but when they started to put out records you know that was a I know Let, let's look you let's know? take a look at that era yeah. we're talking about early 80s now there were there yeah. were other fantastic operators going at the time band wise I mean you had oh. Micro Disney but I, I recall None Attacks uh, The had, Sultans of Ping um, you had five good onto the five good onto the sea. What you would have had, like if you look back, if you were into alternative music as a teenager, the early eighties, eighty, eighty one was absolutely probably one of the best years to be alive because there was so much going on. I mean, Irish. What we, what what is now called post punk, which is the alternative music that came just after punk. Yeah. Our, Ireland, particularly Cork, was really really strong with that. You know, you had Five Get Down to the Sea, you had Mean Features, you had Micro Dancing Disney, and Bastards all, from Hell. Another one. I pl- yeah, I played in the Dancing Bastards. From Did hell. You? We, we were. <laughs> Did I, you? Yeah. <laughs> we were actually we were a bit later, and it it, it, it it's funny because. Um, <laughs> We actually, how how we formed actually was because when Finbar Donnelly died in, in the mid-80s, there was a benefit gig in Henry's and um, I was at the time playing in a band called Belsonic Sound. Belsonic Sound, out. another yeah. super band. You're reminding yeah. me of them all now. The guys I was hanging out with were playing in Cypress Mine <laughs> and we were both asked to do the benefit but we couldn't do it because half my band and half their band were on holidays. So we decided to form a band between us <laughs> and we called it the Dancing Bastards from Hell and that was it. And funnily, Cahill Ka- actually played that night as well and um, I remember he he played two songs just on, on a piano and I, I think it was the bones of what was to come in a year or two with the Fatima Mansion. And where you were know, you gigging? The- I mean, were you gigging the early days in Henry's? Were you gigging at, um, say, for instance, oh. down below at uh, the Arcadia or what? You gigged wherever you could gig. Um, originally it was the Arcadia, but, but the Arcadia shut down in 1981. And a really funny story, I can remember, there were no, you couldn't get venues anywhere. And I remember the first gig Micro Disney did as a two-piece, they hired one of those function rooms in the Metropole Hotel and they pretended that the gig was a wedding. I remember we, there was three of us, I was only in school at the time, we turned up at the gig and there was a girl at the, outside the hotel I and mean, she saw we looked like we were going to the gig and we had suits on, which was even better. She gave us a flower each and told us, put that on, walk in, you're going to look, because you definitely look like guests. So you had to pretend you were a guest. But oh, you, gigged, you gigged anywhere. I remember, like, I remember for years, um, you know, they were trying to replace the Ark with kind of different venues. You had, um, oh, you had the old bodega across from Delacey House. That's right. Which which went for about six months. Um, 
the, the, the thing you always wanted to do, you wanted to graduate to Henry's. That was the thing, you know. That was the prize, was it? The old, original that, wooden Henry's indoors. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was... A, and it, it was bloody hard to get in there, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember with us, it was um, Irish Jack started promoting bands in there and he gave us an entry into that and then um, we supported the Blades on their on their farewell tour. But it was and a wonder after, that there was anyone around because everyone was emigrating then. I mean, oh, Cahill Collin went to London because there was like nothing yeah. here. It was just a dead... It was dead. But, you know, the one memory I have of the... One of the many memories I have of the 80s, remember that, you know, you had... Um, if you can imagine, when you're kind of 16, 17 or 18, you have this big, big gang and you go out to the pub every weekend or you go to gigs or whatever. And as the 80s kind of, as you went from 82, 83, 84, that, that gang, there was, there was face missing less every week from yes. that gang. And yeah. they took, you know, the, the famous Slattery's coach that went from Patrick's Key, that went to London. And, yeah. you know, it was... Now, some of those people were delighted to go to London and they they went to London and they made new lives for themselves, mm. which was brilliant. But there were some people, some people were heartbroken leaving, but you had no choice. There was nothing the in the slattery bus from Patrick's Key. I think it was a fiver yeah. or a tenner, and you took the ferry and the like, coach all the way to yeah, Victoria right. Station. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, and where you know, was where was Cahill Collin living? Was he here in Cork? Was he in Glantorn? Was he in the UK or where? His um. Oh, where was he living? He, he's, he's been living in the UK for years. Has he? Okay. For, yeah, 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 for years, yeah. No, but, but I remember the last time I met him, actually, I had a lovely chat to him after the Micro Disney gig in um, in Cypress Avenue that time. And I was at, like, I, I, I remember I was asking him what were the chances of him doing the whole micro, doing what he did with Micro Disney with Fatima Mansions. And um, I think he was kind of thinking of it. I don't know, would it ever have happened? But, you know, we, we'll never know now. It's a pity. It's, it's such a shame. But, but you know, the, the music he's left, again, I'm just going back to this, is, is so brilliant. I mean, if you look at, if, if you look at great Irish albums, look, you could talk until the cows come home about what the seminal Irish album with. But he did an album, the second album, he did the first full one, but um, Fatal Mansions called Viva Dead Ponies is probably, in my opinion, the most unique Irish album I have ever and, heard. It's and tell me this, is the back catalogue available, do you know? Yes, it is. Um, the um, you You can... He had a problem there up, up to a couple of years ago where he didn't own the rights of a lot of the, all the Fatima Mansion stuff and some of the Micro Disney stuff. And so they weren't available for streaming. Look, now, whether you like streaming or not, that's beside the point, but it's the way people listen now. But they're actually all there now, every one of them in, in the last, I think in the last two or three months, they all appear. They're so all there. Would back. all the other bands be there as well? Your Belsonics, your non Attacks, your Sultans, no. things like that? No. No, no. Sultans are um, the Frank and Waters, for example. Are do you know what oh, they're actually? Yeah. They um, and you feel I'm amazed you find this on Spotify. The record they released from the Ark, the Downtown Campus, that that, that famous EP, the Cot of the Campus. Gotcha. Yeah. Where you have Micro Disney, Non Attacks, Mean Features, and Urban Bits. I mean, That's this is a this is a guy who was who featured quite regularly with uh, John Peel on the BBC. He was a big oh, fan. Oh, John Peel yeah, loved them. Yeah. yeah. I can't. Yeah. I can't. There was a female band on Lee side. I can't. I've had a brain freeze. Yeah. Who were they? Porcelain Tears. Porcelain Tears. Porcelain Tears. Yeah. 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 Good yeah. God. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. There was so oh, we were much so talent. lucky. Yeah, we were we really were lucky. So, yeah. And other ones. Like, I remember um, Max on Rap for another band. Um, and then you had, oh, Gertie, who used to play with um, 
Cahal and Michael Disney also went on to do he the bank on nine wazis from Banya. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even go to how the names were thought up on this I'd one. I wouldn't even ask you where, te- where Dancing Bastards from Hell came from, but I'm quite sure it was inspirational <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim, it's good to catch up and to, and tri- to, talk to, and, and to pay a beautiful tribute to the wonderful Cahal Colin. Thanks so much. Mind yourself, Jim. Thanks, Neil. Cheers, Mind yourself. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. A lot of texts and comments. I'll pick up on it in the morning. But yesterday morning, I was chatting to uh, Shane O'Callaghan, who's cycling all the way from Cork to Essen in Germany. And I promised that I would check in again uh, before we got off air because today is the day that he should cycle into Essen. And if you want to donate on iDonate, I'll give you details again in a few seconds' time. But he joins me on the rotter as he cycles along and uh, and hopefully it's a clear line. Shane, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Anyway, close, pal? Anywhere near Essen? Yeah, yeah, about 20k out. I'm just in uh, in Duisburg there, just crossed over the Rhine a little bit ago and uh, yeah, not far to go now, maybe. You've made, maybe an hour, fabu- just, just you've made fabulous there. time. So you'll be there for lunch then, one o'clock our time, probably yeah, two yeah, issues. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. How's the last 24 hours been? I mean, it must be getting more and more emotional for you when you think of Fabian. Yeah, no, it's been good, all right. Um, this the response yesterday was great. Thanks to the show. Uh, really gave the uh, really gave the donations a boost and had a chit chat with home last night, you know, and we're just we're ready now to, 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 to get in today and to finish it off. Um it's been hard going this morning. It's been tough to get the legs spinning and to uh I know. To push on. It's all flat road and it's windy, so but uh, the end is near, so we're, we're nearly there. I'd we're say the there. last few kilometres, would they be the hardest, Shane, do you think? Uh, actually, I actually, when we were here, when we stayed here, I picked up a bike on the cheap just to get us around <laughs> yeah. and, to, and to get us shopping and things like that. And uh, so I know, I know the route in. It's probably the only road I know since I left. I know, you know, it's well, for those so that may not have heard yesterday, to, of course, little yeah, Fabian, of yeah. course, had a proton treatment in Germany to, and then the thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. the thought was at the time was that it would it would make him okay and make him well, but sadly he he passed away. And the cycle, of course, is to raise money for the Gavin Glynn Foundation, who ultimately send other children of other families over for proton therapy as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, there's a few families there now at the moment, and. Uh, Hoping to meet up with one or two of them, but it depends on their day. They may be in treatment this morning or they may be in, in the I afternoon. Know. So I know. I know. hopefully we'll get to meet one or two of them and uh, we'll, we'll all sit down for lunch. What will you do after that then? Make the trip home? Make the trip home, yeah. I'm booked onto a, a flight out of Dusseldorf this evening at 10 past nine. Where do you put the bike on so, the flight? Uh, well, uh, uh, hopefully a friendly bike shop in... Uh, in Dusseldorf is going to hold a bike for me. I contacted him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, sorry, hold a box for me. Uh, and he said he'd have a box for me ready. So he said this morning he'd be open till five o'clock. So I have to be there before five o'clock to pack uh, the listen, bike in the box and you get it on the plane. Him. Yeah, he, you know, you did what you set out to do. Is there any one outstanding memory of the trip that does stand out exclusive? Um... Probably to be honest, yesterday, yesterday talking to you on the phone yesterday, um, I was really struggling. You know, the legs were giving out. The legs were giving out mad, and I was real tired, and I was starting to get niggles. And I was only about 80k in, and just the chat yesterday, and then all the response from people afterwards, and I saw the comments coming in, and 
talking to my wife, Bash, and, and family at home, I really actually got on the phone for the first time and started talking to home, and everyone was saying what a yeah, great um, yeah. response it was from the radio, and it really drove me on. Well, I'm delighted you the got the boost day, from so, it. You know, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. great, yeah. And as I say, you have Fabian sh- sitting on your shoulder as you cycle along every he single yeah, kilometre and metre. He's here with me all the time, so, yeah, he's, he's push, pushing me, to, he'll push me on now this last 20k or so. All right, okay. And, uh, okay. and well, then we can, we can sit down and enjoy the rest. Absolutely, have a good meal with friends and families that are there also on treatment uh, with the other children. But listen, um, you, as I say, you set out to do what you um, planned, you've got there, a lot of credit due to you, it hasn't been easy. Uh, enjoy and relish the final few kilometres. Thanks very much, Neil. Thanks very much. All right, man. Look after yourself, Shane. Thanks so much. Congratulations on arriving. Yeah, um, thanks for all the support too to your to, to yourselves and the team. You got um, it. it. Really, it really gave it a boost. The last you got it. Days. You got and it. We're nearly there at twelve thousand, so nearly nearly ten euros a kilometre. And we'll drive on. We'll drive on another bit, Shane. Let me just do the. Let me just if, do if the housekeeping can, yeah. on that now. Okay, off you go. Cycle all the way in and enjoy every single kilometre of it. Well done. Thank you. Right. The sure. I donate Shane's Ballinacurra to Essen cycle is on. I donate Shane's Ballinacurra to Essen cycle. It is, of course, in memory of his beautiful son Fabian, who died at the age of three. But to help other families, and if you want to contribute, no matter how big or how small, you can do so now or indeed in the coming days. I donate. You're looking for Shane's Ballinacurra to Essen Cycle and it'd be good to give him a few bob our lines will stay open you can text 0868104106 but our phone lines are open now we have two pairs of tickets for Aslan and two pairs of tickets for Dan McCabe they're both playing on different days the big top rockin' gigs at St Finbar's GA Club in the city Aslan play Saturday June 4th Dan McCabe plays Sunday June 5th get dialing now on 0818104106 have a good day I'll see you tomorrow Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.